episode 13 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Russ and Mike here, still under prohibition. Yeah. Episode number 13, huh? Oh, is this going to be the one that breaks us? Unlucky 13? I don't know. Could be. <laughs> Not feeling too lucky with the way things are going, except that feeling unlucky on the outside yeah yeah but when you can't go out and have fun you can stay home and listen to good music yeah basically all the restaurants in japan close at eight and now they are absolutely forbidden to serve alcohol you, you can still buy alcohol in the liquor shops but you know it's more fun to go out and drink with your friends as a result of that um a lot of people have taken to drinking in the parks which is not terribly yeah. not a really nice sight well what did you expect though i mean you know, really, I, I don't think this is a really good idea. I had we had uh, my band had a gig lined up at a new place that looked really fun to play. That was supposed mm. to happen, you know, this past week, but of course, that's indefinitely postponed. Uh, no really good live music, and nobody wants to come out and see live music if they can't have a drink. Yeah. So, yeah, I bought some new or, recording equipment and or, uh, or wear a mask. Yeah, just one thing. Uh, last um. Last summer, I remember um, when this um, coronavirus was really at its, well, I guess it's at its peak now. But, you know, only half of the people around here were wearing masks. And Japan is, is pretty much a, a mask-wearing country. When they get sick, they wear masks. It's very different than the West. But uh, this year, now I notice everybody's wearing masks all the time. Whenever I see them out in public, it's When they're uh, riding in their car incredible. alone with the windows up. When yeah. When jogging in the countryside. I now, you need to understand, there's, yeah, there's no... Uh, there's no sort of law that says they have to wear a mask. No. No, there hasn't been any pressure like there has in America. They just kind of are all doing it now right. because the numbers are going up. But, you know, here we are. At least at home. we're safe with our pop filters. Right. My and recording equipment. What do you got going on there? sibilances and plosives will not spread any infection to you, Mike. No. Yeah, I'm pretty far away anyway, so yeah. I don't think that'll happen. Yeah. Probably not this week. Yeah. So you said but, you bought uh, some new recording equipment? I didn't want to interrupt that amazing Well, uh, as we recorded admission. several episodes on our my old um, Korg mixer, uh, hmm. which dates back from 2007, and I've used it for lots of live gigs and other things. We, it's easy to do a podcast on it, too. The old Korg D888, which uh, the aging old spinning hard disk I updated with uh, a solid-state drive. Uh, and I found a company in California, the only one I think out there that makes a bus that uh, converts old to new. And I thought I was in business, but after recording some music in a band and losing some data, and then we lost some precious uh, podcasting content. We did. Out, we had to redo part yeah, of last week's we podcast. It, and I found out that you know there's something wrong. It actually, it seems like after stopping and starting a a recording uh, something goes wrong with the addition and the files get corrupted and you know what it's, as much as I like to keep things going I get attached to old gear and things that I have you know I have a lot of old music gear that I think will outlast me but sometimes you got to pull the plug when you start to lose that content so we've got mm -hmm. a new uh, zoom 8 track recorder that uh, I'm just itching to test out and uh, we'll be using that for the podcast and for some band gigs too. 
and yeah. got new mics and uh boy i think i bought like four microphones this year and uh <laughs> we're just all ready to uh, do musical things uh, so maybe in that sense uh, being shut in a bit has been uh helpful in the productivity in music content creation but, no it's uh, been it's been uh helpful in a lot of ways yeah. it's been helpful in a lot of surprising ways really we kind of i think yeah. both of our lives have changed quite a bit for the better this in year some good ways um, yes yeah, yeah. um yeah, from socially we can't really do much but yeah we get to stay away from the people we don't want to see anyway so which is pretty much almost everybody <laughs> pretty much except our audience uh, except our audience in. we'll hang and, out with you uh something uh, i have a few nice things to report this week, one will be coming uh, much later in the broadcast. But first up, uh, last week we reviewed the fabulous recording called To Be Frank by the German guitarist Frank Wingold. And, well, when I had uh, looked at his YouTube page and uh, his teaser for the CD, I thought, oh, I'll include that in our notes for our listeners. And I left a comment there saying that we discussed his album. And uh, he sent a nice email to us uh you know, uh, saying that, you know, he was uh, happy that we discussed his album and it was very complimentary to us, which, uh, yeah, I thought, well, <laughs> I was really, really uh, impressed that he did that. He actually listened to what we said. And um, so if you haven't yet yeah. listened to that CD or uh, recording, rather, uh, buy the CD, but at least uh, check it out. Actually, I uh, think that's a, I think that's a, Download only, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. He mentioned CD, so it must. Oh, be, he mentioned a CD. It must be a Bandcamp so or something. I'm sure it'll be available. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially with guitar, there's so many uh, great uh, technical players out there who can, you know, impress you with kind of you know speeds and and all sorts of things. But a lot of them aren't really doing much musically. But uh, Frank's uh, playing is really on both fronts of. Uh, technical innovation especially what he's doing with the seven string and the multiple parts incorporating piano yeah. type techniques and then doing some really interesting you know musical kind of things uh, it's really wonderful and i hope he yeah. gets a lot more exposure so any of our listeners please uh, go back to the last episode you can find the links there and check out his cd and thank you frank if you listen to this podcast yeah. too we're going to check out what you do in the future and sometime uh why don't you come on and we'd like to have an interview and hear about yeah, let's how you talk got to you. these. I want to know how you did how that. How you got these ideas for extra strings yeah. and new ways of playing? Yeah, thank you, Frank Wingold, for your yeah, response. That was great. Okay, and this week, so we're gonna, what do we got this week? We're gonna we have to cover a huge historical frame. This we have to yeah, go we are way back to the not the beginnings, but uh, as far as what well, we know about music, back. we're gonna go back pretty far. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to before Johann Sebastian Bach, which is when we were young, that That's was right. really where your classical music education started. It, you know, it was, it was Bach, mm -hmm. and then you learned all the uh, the classical, the romantic, the modernist, and yeah, it pretty much stopped the there. Contemporary composers didn't count back in those days. No, you know? they were too scary. <laughs> yeah, they were too anything scary. anything before that wasn't yeah. codified enough to be explainable. Yeah. So we're going to start, but, gonna start there with classical, and we're going to go up to some cutting bleeding edge new releases in jazz and uh this week is a sax feature it's all yeah. sax work so yeah. yeah let's get the ball rolling all right well let's go okay so before 
Bach, before the Baroque era, really before Monteverdi, who also is kind of recent, there was the uh, the Renaissance era. And most of mm. the music we have um, uh, surviving from that era would be church music. Um, before um, th- these days, well, I don't know about these days, but basically in the, um, I guess, the uh, classical and romantic era, the the biggest challenge a composer faced was to write an opera. And uh, before before the Baroque era, it would have been to write a mass. All right, the mass was the big uh, setting that you would make. And uh, so we have a lot of uh, music for the church. And there's also, there's some secular music too from that era, uh, which is very long. I think it lasted like 200 years, the, the Renaissance era. Um, anyway, um, and also being that this is our 13th episode, we figured we, we needed uh, the church's help there you know, in right. the form of religious music. So we're going for the music of uh, Josquin Depré, who um, is known as Josquin, not as Depré. So you want to call him Josquin, okay? If you're talking to your friends, you want to seem like you're in the know. All right, uh, Josquin was, okay, if you think about Bach, the greatest Baroque era, composer of the Baroque era, if not of all time, uh, Josquin was the greatest composer of the Renaissance, all right? And so he's he and every other Renaissance composer pretty much said as much. So he's uh, someone worth knowing about. Um, and this year happens to be the 500th anniversary of his death. So this is another anniversary. Yeah, this is really one of the reasons why I picked this one. Um, but it's it's well worth talking about. The album is called The Golden Renaissance, and it's um, performed by Stile Antico. Now, I know Stile Antico because over the last, um, oh, almost 10 years, they've released three um, albums of religious Christmas music from the Renaissance era. Okay, now, what I mean by Christmas music isn't like carols or anything. It's church settings of polyphony that would have been sung at masses uh, back in the Renaissance era. There's no Frosty the Snowman. Yes, Frosty doesn't make an appearance there. In fact, uh, I think... uh, Actually, some of the, some of your your favorite uh, Silent Night isn't there either. Well, that's because that was the 19th century. Franz right. Gruber wrote that one. Those are pretty recent. Those songs, yeah. But um, and they're 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 very good. I mean, they're, they're, they yeah, um, I have that but, one. It's kind of Christmas ish e kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's not though. It just sounds like Renaissance uh, church yeah. music, except it's, that it's, it's got religious uh, music. It's it's got uh, texts about Jesus' birth, basically. That's what it's about. All right. Yeah. Well, anyway. Um, yeah, okay, so Josquin died on uh, August 15th, 1521, so we're not quite at his 500th anniversary yet. It's coming up pretty soon, okay? To the sadness and mourning of musicians everywhere in Europe, as you will uh, hear if you listen to the end of this album. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay, this is, uh, so the Golden Renaissance on Decca Records is a very long and generous program, an hour and 23 minutes, so they're going over the uh, the uh, traditional... Uh, CD length of 80 minutes. They fit all this on one CD. I have the CD, so here it is right here for, for us to see. Okay. It looks super-sized. It's not. It's just Do you have to normal. squeeze that in the drawer to make it play? I'm amazed that you know, my old CD player plays it all. I guess wow. they kind of, I don't know, it knows where to read this. I don't mm. know how they do that. You know, Nano robots. Yeah, they can go up to around an hour and 25 minutes now. Okay, now, one of the things to know, let me give you a little history of Josquin first. Josquin was the greatest composer of his era, and he wrote these just 
luxurious, um, you know, polyphonic works, okay? And, of course, other composers started sort of uh, imitating him, copying him, or being influenced by him, and pretty much all church music from this era um, took on a little bit of the Josquin's style. Now, this became a problem because the luxuriousness of this music, the layering, um, covered up the words, and the church was not happy about that. And uh, there was a big... Uh, there was a big movement to just ban all music from the church because um, it was making people happy, and you know you can't be happy in church. So, so they, um, so so there's a big movement there, and the 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 reason we still have music in church, by the way, uh, if, if you if you like music to hear music every week when you're in church and you're and you happen to be a Catholic, you can uh, thank uh, Giovanni Pierluigi da Palestrina who came to the rescue um, by sort of writing polyphonic works in which you could understand the words. He rather cleverly um, organized all the voices so that any new consonant on a new word would just pop out of the texture, like he would kind of like have it so that it would just appear so that you knew what part of the text was being sung. Now, with Josquin, generally speaking, you can't tell where you are after a while in the text unless you're following very, very closely. But... Oddly enough, that is not an issue with this recording. This is a, a pretty uh, amazing feat of, um, oh, engineering and um, just vocal placement or, uh, you know, microphone placement because um, the voices are very clearly audible. I think it's also the, the ensemble is fairly small as well, so I think you can hear the voices fairly clearly. Um and in fact, right from the first track, which is a Salve Regina, Welcome Queen, referring to Mary, okay? Um, uh, right, right away, we hear um, the, just the, these just these beautiful tapestry of sound. All of the voices and all of the lines are very audible. And I think what has happened here is the singers were placed a certain distance from the microphone, like sopranos were a little further away because they tend to really kind of pin the meters if you're if you're a recording engineer, which I've done this. Soprano voices, the very high women's voice, are very hard to record. They, they tend to distort very easily. It's um, a good balanced recording, and it's, yeah. it's recorded. I looked it up because I was impressed with the, you know, the clarity. Yeah, of the it was sounds, amazing. But also the, you know, the uh, spatial characteristics. So it's the recording venue is all hollows, Gospel Oak, London, and you can hear the, you know, the great church acoustics, but at the same time, uh, the sort of uh, enunciation and balance doesn't get lost in those, yeah. um, you know, the, in sort of the reverberation of the hall right. sound. So they've achieved both here with clarity and also ambiance. So yeah. uh, nice engineering uh, to capture uh, both sides of uh, the recording in that. Yeah, and considering what I've told you about this composer who's really recording for the, the sound more than the words, who, who's composing for the sound more than the words, this is quite an achievement. I mean, they've really kind of uh, done something really special here as yeah, far as engineering goes. If you look at the text, you can, you can follow it along with no yeah. uh, major difficulties. Right. Uh, and part of that has to do with the works themselves, but we'll get to that too. Uh, the second track is the plain chant, Pange Lingua, which is all kind of, uh, a plain chant is just all the voices singing the same um, melody. Okay, sort of like what you would hear in uh, a soccer stadium with uh, people singing songs and things like that, except that this is a 
you know, rather well-known uh, plain chant from the church. Now, the reason we hear this is because the mass that follows is um, based on that um, right the text that that, that yeah. plain chant. Yeah. Um, now, norm. Now, there are a lot of ways that the composer can use the uh, plain chant in the um, mass. He can set it as a cantus firmus, which is usually sort of like a tenor voice that's just sort of singing the exact melody, while everybody else just sort of decorates on top of it. Now, in in this kind of music. If you happen, and the plain chat is usually unidentifiable because, um, first of all, it'll be buried in uh, under these higher voices, and second of all, they'll be adding all these other passing notes and sort of ornamentation to it themselves, so it's almost unidentifiable. But the idea is that the, um, you know, the the spirit of the plain chant sort of like you know the is in there, and you don't have to necessarily hear it in order to uh, for your kind of I guess subconscious to pick it up. You kind of have a sense that it's there on some deep level. Um, but that's th- in this case the Panja Lingua though is partially sung in most of the church um, uh, you know, movements, but we don't uh, unlike on a normal on what's normally normal practice on these type of recordings we don't get the whole mass together it's broken up by these um sort of um in these um different the, the various of movements of the mass here, are, right. yeah. yeah there are other compositions that break it up and i thought this was a really nice idea because when you hear a uh when you go to a mass i mean you certainly don't you know, have the Kyrie followed by the Gloria followed by the Credo. I mean, there's all this talking in between. And right. uh, so in, instead of like having us kind of <laughs> go suffer through <laughs> a mass, an, an actual mass, we we get other compositions, which are pretty uh, varied, actually. They, yeah. they chose some good stuff. Yeah, motet and... Um, yeah. Yeah, incidentally, I should mention uh, the final movement of a Mass is usually, almost always, the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. And uh, in that in that um, movement, we hear for the first time in the third iteration of Lamb of God, we hear the entire Misa, pan, the entire Panjolingua plain yeah. chant, yeah, the entire thing for the first time. Uh, it's not, it's only partially sung in all the other movements, if we can call them that. All right, so first of all, we have, um, between the Kyria and Gloria, we have a motet, um, which is a religious work in this case, Ave Maria. Okay, Virgo Serena. Okay, and another motet between the Gloria and Credo, uh, Inviolata, Intega et, et Casta Est. These are all about Mary, by the way. Um, so we have the Mass and um, all, the, all these songs about Mary. And then... Oddly enough, is this on this completely religious recording between track the credo and the sanctus, we get two uh, popular yeah the songs, song. which is a little bit of a surprise. Uh, it it really just kind of break the mood, but in in a good way. It kind of I kind of feel like if we were at the mass, it's almost like you're looking away from the altar and up into the choir loft to see what's going yeah. on up there. Well, and uh, I think the first uh, the 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 first um. Uh, song is called um, yeah, "Vivrai Je Toujours." Okay. Yeah, and this um, one, this one has a really yeah. great voice movement in it. It sort of it broke me out of my religious sort of yeah. trance when I heard this, and I thought, "Wow, this is sort of like a an intermission with lots of things to follow that sort yeah. of gets your attention back into things again." So uh, I really enjoyed this movement a lot. Yeah, in a really big way too, because the uh, the singer is lamenting the pain that um, his the person he's singing to, the pain that his 
his uh, listener can satisfy. And I think we know what that pain is. Okay. <laughs> I like to th I like to think that this particular episode is happening in the choir loft, where the singer is hoping to give his um his uh his his um this person causing him pain a renaissance workout if you will can we say that on adult music <laughs> we we just did <laughs> we implied it perhaps yeah there you go that's um and then after that we have this catchy frottola called el grillo which means the cricket okay and oh. this is an earworm or shall we say a cr an ear cricket because ear it cricket. just stayed in my ear all week yeah. El Grillo, El Grillo en Buen Cantore. Okay, and I just heard that all week long. I was just kind of bouncing around to, to, to this. Wow. <laughs> it's a very cute song. It's a frotola. A frotola is um, the predecessor to the madrigal. It was a little more uh, homophonic, okay, whereas madrigals were, got a little more polyphonic afterwards, and they became the norm. Okay, it's very light, and it's really cute. Okay. Um, and at the end, we learn again that the cricket sings for love. Okay, this is not the, uh, and of course for erotic love, not for the uh, the love of God or anything like that. Well, so these are really to have a, a little um, bit of both in there, you know. Yeah. Okay. This is yeah. This is really playful. I really enjoyed this a lot. I've been singing all week. El grillo en buen cantore. Yeah. That really stuck in my ear. When we get out the recorder, I think we should be capturing. That's no, we already have. I think we've definition. captured enough. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, it's, our attention comes back to res, the... a high res of that? Or? No, I think no, I'll pass. Yeah. All right. Okay. Anyway, give that a, give that particular track a listen because it's really it's it's really cute. Yeah. It'll stick in your ear. If you think uh, the Renaissance was a boring time, I think this might change your mind. Although I I have heard that track before performed by other groups, and it, I've heard like peppier performances. But this is again really beautiful with these mm -hmm. these gorgeous voices. It's a little yeah, it's it, it's careful, but it's not like to the point where it's gonna it's losing its character. It's it's actually really really good. I've never heard a cleaner performance of it. Um, okay, back to the uh, mass, the Sanctus and Benedictus. They're very spare, which I guess sort of suits. Um, I, the programming is very nice. Uh, Grillo also isn't a very um, ornate uh, piece either. Okay, now I have to confess that after hearing El Grillo, I kind of that was so in my head that the <laughs> the rest of this album didn't really sink in as much. And in, in the, the track between the Sanctus and the uh, Agnus Dei, Virgo Salutiferi Genitrix, is um, very complex, and it was a little uh, hard to follow. This is kind of more in line with um, what we expect from Josquin. Okay, the contrapuntal lines uh, bring the text a bit out of alignment, so it's kind of hard to figure out where you are. But again, it's beautifully recorded, and you can, if you listen carefully, uh, you know, if you follow one voice, you'll kind of have an idea of where the uh, text is. Okay. Um, okay. The men, by the way, in this recording seem to me to be further up front, and the soprano seems like she's elevated and far back, because that voice carries a lot. Um, really ingenious, again. Okay, then we have the Agnus Day, where we finally hear the entire Pangelingua plain chant, um, the melody, okay, of it sung to the Agnus Day text. And after that, Josquin uh, departs. I guess, <laughs> I guess they're symbolizing his death here, or something like that, because the um, the next two uh, works are by uh, two other composers, and they're both about, they're both, um, I guess, about Josquin. They're kind of. Uh, 
you know, acknowledging his death and his greatness. Uh, the first is called um, Omors Inevitabilis, which is uh, laments the uh, death of Josquin. That's by Hieronymus Vinders. And then Jacquet of Mantua uh, has a motet called uh, Dum Vostos Adre Fluctus, whose text I really couldn't figure out what, what there. There's all this weird Greek mythology in here, and then Josquin appears in it, and I, I couldn't make out what was being said, but it was a lament for <laughs> Josquin. I, I, I figured out that much. Okay. But anyway, so... Musically, I preferred the uh, Jacquet de Mantua uh, yeah. just because it had more uh, of what I liked yeah. uh, in the main recording in a voice movement. Uh, the Vindirs was a bit static to me. Um, yeah, so. it was a little more straightforward, though, as far as um, its message. Content, did, yeah. Did you listen with the text? Did you follow the text when you well, were... Well, yeah, yeah, by the time I got to the <laughs> the end, my eyes were getting tired from uh, right. looking at the various translations and then the English, so... Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I would say, this is, if, if you're new to Josquin, this is an excellent... Um, um, you know, starting point for his music. Uh, by the way, the Panja Lingua Mass is believed to be the last mass that Josquin ever wrote. And uh, it looks like he was going in a new direction because this is not really an ornate sounding of, you know, polyphonic mass at all. It is polyphonic, but it sounds a little bit uh, thinner in its te- in its texture. It's a little clearer. Maybe uh, Josquin was getting the message from the church authorities that he had to uh, make those uh, texts a little more audible to the uh, church-going uh, people. Yeah. Like we, we wouldn't call them an audience, would you? <laughs> Cap- to the congregation. Captive- yeah. Ca- I don't know what you say. Uh, kept, not congregation? Captive, but captivated. Um, captive, but captivated. I'm not sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure the, so anyway, highly recommended. I, I especially like the way, as I said before, that the Mass was broken up by these other works. It kind of lent a lot of interest. This is a program you can listen to from beginning to end without stopping. Okay, it, It's uh, very appealing as a program. We talked about this a little bit. Uh, when you listen to music pre-Baroque, yeah. that um, you know, we're, whatever music you listen to, you're conditioned from whatever it is that you know. And if you have a normal sort of progress through the traditional Western classical tradition that starts at Baroque or something, uh, you know, it, if you go beyond that to modern compositions, you have some expectations that are hard to deal with. And in the same way, if you go to earlier works here, it's hard not to see through that lens of what was codified and developed, solidified in Baroque and afterwards. And so what I like about this music, uh, it's it's more suggestive than it is prescriptive. Uh, that So you can't, I don't think you can really call what you hear in this music a true developed counterpoint, but it's sort of a contrapuntal in nature. So I, I was looking at different analysis of his music and what the main features are. And I, I saw a description that I could understand. And so that said, it he has what has been described as uh, motivic cells. And mm. what what is that? We have it's, that in Beethoven sounds, as yeah. well. <laughs> but what I like about it, so there, there are sort of um, melodic pieces that you can easily recognize. And, you know, you'll hear this uh, phrase 
that gets passed on to the next voice. You know, so hmm. it, it 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 could go you know either way from you know female voices to a lower voice or the, to male voice, but it's sort of uh, a phrase that gets um, handed off throughout the arrangement. And although it's not um, developed to some you know grand extent and you know embellished upon, you do feel that movement uh, that goes through uh, with carrying on an idea. As it's passed through, you know, not to the extent that it's developed by Bach and others in uh, Baroque, or then, you know, even more so in in classical music. Uh, and the other thing we talked about uh, this sort of uh, expectation of uh, sort of cadences in music, and mm. uh, you know, those are you know sort of really set with you know harmonic progressions in Baroque and then not variated from so much in classical music. In here, uh, you can hear sort of soft, a lot of soft cadences, and then sort yeah, it's of like just, the end of a phrase and yeah, a little cadence, and then... Yeah. Or suggested, or, you know, partial cadences, but they don't play a, a big a sort of uh, ending point. The, the music moves on cl- quickly after some sort of hmm. uh, place that you're... You may be looking for more based on what you're used to in um you know baroque music or later periods but this music doesn't dwell on those things so much and in listening to that i think you're sort of uh, reminded of you know later periods of music in uh, romantic and after where you know sort of having to hit these certain touch points was they tried consciously to get away from but if you have to think intellectually that at this time those things weren't so established so they weren't even expectations in the composer's mind so i like that sort of freedom of the music sort of seems to move on to more important things rather than connecting sort of required harmonic you know sort of uh, bases that it has to connect with that and so so to me i found that part very interesting that it defies what i expect to hear more than other music that I, I know often listen to. And so that was really enjoyable. Yeah, right. Um, part of the reason incidentally that that happens is because um, the, these um, these works are being written to a, a text that is already in existence. So right. the music has to fit the text. It has to serve the when, text, yeah. The, the whole idea of um, instrumental music, long movements of instrumental music started in the Baroque era before the Renaissance in the Renaissance if you heard an instrumental work it was just usually dances or some song or something like that but the whole idea of having a a long movement of with no words in it um, really developed in the uh, Baroque era and the way they maintained interest was through um, tonality through these cadences and as the as the centuries wore on, these cadences got further and further between. Until in the Romantic era, when we were completely decadent, we rarely heard them at all. <laughs> they, <laughs> they can, I think Wagner's opera Tristan and Isolde has um, maybe one cadence in the entire three hour structure. The audience was going crazy, probably waiting for that cadence. Um, and in those days, people sort of sort of like the way you have expectations for a pop song people in those days would have um had expectations from the music they were listening to yeah. and they would have been aware of these sorts of things you know what is it like when's the cadence coming 93 or 4 percent familiarity is what the average person is expecting from something so is that right where'd you hear that oh some some you know i'm always reading these kind of things but 
That's pretty interesting. That not what's good. Not what the adult audience expects, but uh, we we strive for the adult audience things. expects only ninety percent, right? Only ninety. Well, we want familiarity, right? All right, so much. yeah, when you're writing to a, a text, the 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 text drives the word, the the music. So um, the form that the music is going to take is going to depend on the text. Now with the mass, this became uh, a pretty standard thing. So compose, you, you sort of after a while had an idea of what those were going to sound like. Um, I want to mention one more thing when you're listening to this. It's all, with the exception of El Grillo en Buen Cantore. Love that. I can't get that out of my head. I didn't get um, the recorder set again. Yeah, Jeez. no worries. Uh, we're, I think we're being recorded now. But when you're listening to a polyphonic work, you have to keep in mind, and this has got a little odd if you've grown up listening to pop music like I did. Um, it took me a while to actually work this out and how to do this. All of the voices, all of the melodies you're hearing are of equal importance. Okay. Now, in a homophonic work, generally speaking, the highest voice is the most important one. That's where the melody is, and the rest is kind of accompaniment. It's kind of like not as catchy or things like that. But in polyphonic music, you're hearing um, four voices that are of equal importance, including the bass. Okay, usually the bass will anchor um, a homophonic work, but in poly polyphony, it's it's another voice, and you really need to be hearing that. Now, keep that in mind. There's no one single voice that's more important than the others. Maybe polyphonic music should come back. You know, we should... Uh, Put that in pop music. Yeah. What do you think? Let's have the melody and the bass more often. Yeah, let's have the melody and the bass. <laughs> see, see how people react to that. We're so used to the bass just anchoring the uh, the chords, you know, just kind of well, like hold, holding it all down. Yeah. yeah, in in popular music, not in the Renaissance. Everybody was equal then, equally they poor. I guess musical equity. They had musical they had achieved musical equity back then, and now we're now we favor the uh, the highest voice. Unbelievable. Anyway, my, my aging ears can't even hear those high tones anymore. I remember I taught a class about um, um, like um, a fugue, okay, and I wanted these students to identify the theme when it came in because this you hear it. This is the first thing you hear, and they all heard them in the soprano, the uh, the alto and the tenor, but in the bass voice, they didn't hear it at all. They just didn't listen to the bass. It was very interesting to me. They've been you conditioned know? against it with those you were terrible earbuds. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say also to the audience, I mean, I grew up listening to pop music, so I really had to learn how to listen to classical music and really other kinds of music. Um, but it's it's worth the effort because um, learning how to listen to a, a new kind of music, and if you figure it out, then it, it, it kind of, it's kind of like learning a new language. When you do that, other languages and other kinds of music become easier to learn because you kind of know that you're going to have to do a certain amount of work in order to, um, you know, kind of understand it. So anyway, give this a listen. It's just, be it's, it's yeah. beautiful as it is. It this is, is a lovely. gorgeous recording. Puts you clean in recording. So clean that it makes suds. Wow. Well, <laughs> I felt clean after, I felt squeaky clean oh. after listening to it. Let's go rinse off before the next one. And let's go yeah. rinse off before yes. the next um, part because we're going to need it. All right? That's right. All right. Coming up next, we have a new recording of Beethoven's seventh symphony. And really, my personal favorite, although I sometimes like the sixth a lot mm -hmm. too because right? that's, a, that's a simpler one, but I love the gorgeous melodies in that, the pastoral. But the seventh symphony by Beethoven, this is a recording by uh, Musica Eterna 
conducted by Theodore Kerensis. Now, if you're if you're a classical music listener and you know what's going on in the field and you hear that name, Theodore Kerensis, you know you're really in for something because uh, he's got a unique sort of approach to everything that he records. Now, since hearing his really amazing um, recording of uh, Stravinsky's um, Rite of Spring back in around uh, 2014, I guess it was, um, I, I've really had my ears on this composer. Now, he does something rather unique. He'll only record one work per album, and that's the no case extras. here. No extras No here. extras. No, no extras on any of his recordings since Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Before that, he used to do, he did a few Mozart right. operas and things like that, but I think he's kind of landed on this thing where he's only giving you and this. For some reason, these mm. recordings really polarize uh, the listeners. Uh, you know. Would you read the reviews? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, people either love these or they hate these, which I found kind of interesting. So. Well, yeah, they're all certainly kind of new, all right? Now, before the, I want to mention um, before this, he had recorded Beethoven's fifth, fifth yeah. symphony, the really famous one, da 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 da, that yeah. one, and uh, that's overplayed. We've heard it a million times, and yet he managed to make it come up sounding really fresh. Okay, it's it's um, it's it's kind of lean. It's a bit aggressive, but it's not powerful the way that the um. The really famous recordings are, especially the one by Carlos Kleiber, which is with the, I think it's the Vienna Philharmonic, which is considered to be the the best recording of the Fifth yeah. Symphony. But, it turns uh, out that Kleiber also recorded the Seventh Symphony, and that's considered to be the best recording of that work as well. Yeah. And okay. not only that, back in the day, Kleiber also released, he didn't record much, Kleiber, and he uh, released the Fifth Symphony and the Seventh Symphony on individual discs, like Carensis has here. So I think Carensis is trying to echo Kleiber in this. He's tr he's really laying down the uh, gauntlet for himself. He wants that comparison, I think. Yeah, I'll come back when we get to the end of this. But I mean, that's sort of my basic question with this is why record this? Unless, yeah. well, especially unless the fifth, you, yeah. you could bring yeah. any Beethoven. Why record any of these? Unless mm. you thought you had something new to bring to it. You know, why play it safe and be lost in the archives of various recordings that will be considered less than something else. But um, when we get to the end, I'll give my uh, my yeah. idea about that uh, with uh, you know, some other observations on it. Well, Carensis, of course, always does have a unique approach, and that is the case here. He's sort I, of the, punk, the new punk conductor of the... I guess Classical you could call world, him that. Yeah. He's, he's been described as such in various articles that I've oh, seen. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't read that, but I did know that he was polarizing. I, I had read about that. Yeah. Um, but critics tend to be pretty excited by his well, request, as I read, am I. I'm always curious to hear what he's going to do. I read a number do. of like reviews, yeah. like just you know, casual things like Amazon and other record sites where they- Are these the, like listeners or are these the professional listeners, critics? Listeners okay. who rip apart like- how much they disliked parts of the recording, but still gave it five stars because, you know, they couldn't stop from enjoying it, even though they were bothered by what he did. I completely understand that. And that's going to come up yeah. in, my, yeah. in my discussion here, too. So when I was listening to this, um, I have a few recordings of this, but uh, the yeah, one so I had... As, as do we all. Yeah, <laughs> the one I had at hand um, that I thought was the more... the 
you know, I don't know. I have some really old ones from like, you know, the the classic series, like in the you know fifties and sixties. But um, so the one I had that had modern Sonics was uh, uh, the RCA of Gunter Wandt, uh, who's a respected ah. uh, Beethoven and and um, also um, Bruckner recording. And I, I right. my expectations. Well, in some ways they were confirmed, but I was surprised by some things that were different. But as we go through the movements, I'll bring those up. Okay. Anyway, the, I think the, it's a good idea to bring up uh, Wagner's um, comment about this particular symphony, the seventh. Um, he said that uh, he considered Beethoven's seventh to be the apotheosis of the dance. Okay, because these are... Hmm. Four highly rhythmically charged movements in anybody's hands, really. Um, but if you're but if you're actually thinking of uh, standing up in the concert hall and dancing to them, I think you better sit down now. The rest of us are trying to listen. Okay. Anyway, the 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 whole danciness of this really kind of comes out. Um, he seems to really hit the um the bass like the first beat in each bar mm-hmm. or wherever the accent happens to be because Beethoven likes to play with the. Uh, where where the beat is, he'll often yeah. like throw the listener off by placing like the sforzandos in the middle of the um, measure or something like that, so that you're hearing like two beats when when you have a three beat sort of um, measure going. He he likes to mess up the uh, the listener's um, understanding of the meter. Well, but, I, uh, I noticed that throughout hmm. all of these, especially in the first movement, the uh, poco sostenuto, there's great hmm. attention to the details of articulation. Uh, more so than in any other recording I've heard of it, um, you know the the contrasts here in articulation, but overall dynamics are huge. Uh, right, you know, you, especially you, in the lower end, the bass yeah. and the uh, timp, the timpani are really loud. You're going to mm-hmm. reach for the volume control on the soft passages, and then you're going to be blown away. Um, yeah, by you know the uh, louder passages. So the, he's really emphasizing uh, both you know, sort of articulation differences in the line where the accents are, and then in the overall uh, pianissimo and uh, forte passages uh, in in the works. Uh, so there's huge dynamic contrast in his interpretation of these. In, in the entire, the entire yeah. all four movements, really, I like that. Yes. Um, also, he, get, he manages in this movement, and really in all four of the movements, too, to get a really... Um, well, the ones that are like this. Um, he gets a really sort of dancey sort of um, light... Fleet, light-footed kind of like uh, rhythm going, like dun 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 dun. dun, dun. You know, it's it's, it kind of really, it really kind of gets into your um sort of um nervous system, like it kind of it's it's sort of energizing. It's really fantastic. One of the things I thought, well, it was interesting to me because it 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 carries this sense of movement. But then when I compared the whole recording to the uh, Gunter von version, Mm -hmm. I realized that he the tempos. Are actually much slower. Yeah, and uh, the Carlos Kleiber too, which is the one I'm yeah, very familiar and with. So the track lengths are a lot shorter. And then when I compared them, but they he's in it, he's able to carry a sense of movement with slower tempos. And I'm wondering how he did that. And so one of the things I noticed was that um, the somehow in this recording, it's not just the recording. I don't want to say it's that but in in the way he balances the voices that uh the, there's a lot of clarity here in in a lot of beethoven recordings um when the when the passages get big there's a lot that's lost in sort of the mass of sound uh but here uh you can 
especially in the, the clarity of all the string parts, things that I never noticed before uh, yeah. come out. And um, that despite the, you know, the, as I mentioned, the uh, dynamics, the loud passages being really loud uh, yeah. throughout, you can notice the clarity of all the parts are easy to pick out. And you don't get a huge sort of wall of uh, yeah. just sort of, uh, I don't, not distorting, but sort of covering sound by the the larger voices. You can, you can easily hear the parts here. And I noticed things that I hadn't picked out before uh, listening here. In, with the balance of sound and then the articulation. So I thought that was uh, pretty uh, interesting to me. And also that it seems to create this sense of motion that never right. seems like it's actually slower. But then when I compare it to another recording that I know, the tempos are actually uh, slower, but the motion is still there. So those things I found really interesting. Yeah, it has something to do with pulse as opposed to yeah, like yeah. you know going to the bar it's, it, I, I don't really understand how that works not being a conductor myself uh, that would be nice but I know I know what you're talking about as far as like these little details in the score just popping out because he also sort of um, emphasizes some of them for example one one that I noticed that really kind of surprised and rather you know that I rather liked was in the opening the first theme now the the first movement starts with a slow introduction and then uh, when the the kind of dancey rhythm starts, the dun, 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 you hear the melody that just sort of emerges out of that. Dun, dun, dun. And then there's a sequence down. Dun, dun. But it doesn't go. Dun, dun, dun. I always thought it was. Dun, dun, dun. But there's a little grace note on that last note. Dun, 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 you know, mm. dun, 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 dun. and he really hits that grace note harder than other composers do not really hard it's it's sort of subtle but it stands out it po pops out i didn't even know that grace note was there and i had heard this work how many times so it's sort of um a little interesting and he does this again and again in this movement there are all sorts of sort of string figurations that i wasn't aware of and uh all sorts of like uh detail that that pops out and i thought this was just fascinating i really loved it okay now the second movement of this work is is very famous of course um it's sort of like this um it's it's sort of like a a march or a sort of dirge sort of rhythm and it starts mm. with the bass now on this recording the um the, the opening melody played in the uh the bass and the cellos is it's so quiet yeah, so I like such a gossamer notes. thin sound. Well, it was immediately noticeable yeah, because i was like soft strings start i wrote yeah but because Okay, look, I live in non-existent. A, right, it was almost inaudible, and the fact the the fact that matters. I was listening to this on my stereo, and I live in an area where there are people walking by outside. They, they I kind of live in an area where there's a mountain near me, and people like to go out and climb the mountain. And you can generally hear them talking. There are schoolgirls around, and you know, school children. Uh, there's a school right up the street, so you, you hear them kind of going by. I think it's a girls' school. I've actually haven't figured that out yet, but. Um, they, you know, they during this part it was playing, and normally I don't hear the people outside, but I'm trying to concentrate on the melody, and it really is something where you're leaning in, you know, when you're on the sofa, and you're kind of leaning into the speaker so you can hear it better. And all mm. I was hearing was the voices outside, you know, and uh, I I couldn't really make it out. <laughs> it was, it was mm. the voices outside were drowning it out, and I was really tempted to go to the window and just yell out the window and say, "Hey, I'm listening to Beethoven." But I didn't do that, <laughs> thankfully. 
Well, the window's broken by those. Yeah. Well, you know. Girls. But uh, <laughs> but the the fact that I wanted to do that told me that I was really engaged with this recording and I wanted to hear it. I'm looking. Anyway, all, yeah. This. Yeah, all my neighbors are elderly and I believe hard of hearing, so I can listen at you know 100 watts as many decibels as I want. But I was sort of uh, wondering what was going on here. Like, why is this so quiet? <laughs> it was uh, extremely it, low level. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. I, I think to a fault. I really think that was. Uh, I mean, I, I guess he wants to. Uh, he wants the drama of the vom coming. It really does kind of like yeah. build. Um, it doesn't just suddenly come in and just blow you off your uh, sofa like in that old uh, Maxell poster where uh, the guy's like <laughs> being blown away from you know the, from the nineteen eighties. But, uh, yeah, it, it gradually gets louder and then everything yeah. is okay. Um, yeah, but I thought, because it's, it's such a famous and, you know, memorable, like, melody. And it's really what's, what you're, it's, it's sort of like, acts as like a Pasacalia bass until, like, the, the whole mm-hmm. thing changes in the middle. Um, w- w- with this other, you know, kind of co- almost kaleidoscopic sort of, like, development happening over it. Um, yeah, but I, I wish that we were a little louder. I thought that was kind of an odd mistake. Um, incidentally, a little historical note, Beethoven's audience, Beethoven's symphonies were the loudest symphonies ever written up to its time. So they really did kind of, like, uh, it, you know, as with this recording, um, they did um, excite and um, annoy audiences, depending on their kind of temperaments uh at the time okay so uh he had his uh his supporters and his uh, detractors as well as as Carensis does and i think Carensis might be trying to uh remind us of that you know to try, try to give us that um feeling of uh what his audience beethoven's original audiences might have felt like hearing yeah. these works you Could know? Be. yeah but this builds up and uh yeah when when it comes to the um the end of the this section the first section before it goes into the middle section we hear those really quiet bass again okay and I was kind of like uh, <laughs> hmm. you know I, don't, I thought it was a little too quiet you got to keep we're, we we live in houses here we need to be able to hear this sound it's not like we're in a concert hall um you you know that if you were hearing this in a concert hall though some idiot would cough like right <laughs> right as those lines were playing. You know, so you just can't win anyway, you know, only in the recording studio. He must have enjoyed it himself. All right. Third movement and the fourth movement. I'll, I'll do these together again. Very. Uh, the third movement is kind of a bit brusque in its um, rhythm. It's, it's, it, it feels kind of pushy, you know. Um, it's, it's got kind of like a, 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 br- a brusque sort of humor to it. You know. And uh, again, rhythmically very uh, incisive. Okay, very dancey again. And the last movement as well, the same. Um, these were a little more. I felt these were a little more straightforward. By this mm. point, I kind of was was getting um, sort of used to his whole aesthetic. So I wasn't. And again, there are orchestral details popping out. Again, as I mentioned in the first movement, the third and fourth movement, and the second movement too. This happens, but. Um, you know, by 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 this time I was a little bit. I had warmed to it a little bit, and I just uh, found myself to be uh, pretty high by the time this whole um, CD ended. This out, this out. You know, this the symphony is the only work on the album. Um, it it really had uh, elevated me, my mm. mood. Okay, so I think I would recommend this. I understand these people who are complaining about it and then giving it five stars because oh, I, I kind yeah. of feel I know what they mean. Anyway, I did like it anyway. 
my my summation. It, it was certainly my, new. My notes say uh, a lean Beethoven seven with focus on details, clarity of strings, articulation and accents. Um, seems to be uh, divisive in others' opinions, but yes, why record this unless you can bring something new to it? Uh, you know, it's been recorded so many times. Yeah. And I, I believe he does bring a fresh take on it, and it seems, uh, you know, it's, it sort of shrugs off convention, and uh, he takes it in, in some new uh, directions. And like I say, the, the final, the presto and allegro con brio are not so, uh, you know, unconventional. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I think... Uh, it's a it's fresh and uh, it seems it is like, fr- fresh is a good word yeah, for it. That's exactly it's, right. It, it That's what I would to say. Like have gone through uh, Weight Watchers and shrugged off some sort of cultural expectations. Yeah, but and, it's got this uh, tremendous energy and forward yeah. momentum too. It's I mean it's really sort of exciting. I don't know, but it's it's energetic. Yeah. Let's energetic. say it's got this real. It's it's really uplifting. I liked it a lot. I, I enjoyed this. And, yeah, uh, I did too. I just the only thing is that second movement. I really wish those bases were louder. That's it at the beginning and at the end of those phrases. Anoetic, anoetic, and at, uh, at intermittent parts in the to, uh, movement. Uh, to it's just too. You could have it quiet, but this was it was too quiet. It was, it was almost like quiet. inaudible. To be in the right. soundproof chamber. Uh, yeah, I do want to say. So I'd still be annoyed. <laughs> here, well, with classical music, this is one of the things um, that makes. Uh, you know, something like this, Beethoven or any major composer, interesting. In in the case of Beethoven, all of his symphonies have been recorded so many times. Hmm. So there are so many favorite versions that listeners yeah. have, so many standards to conform to. You're up against a wall of expectation. And uh, in extreme contrast to this, going back to our episode 10, uh, we uh, spoke of the... Ronitsky recording. Oh, yeah. And uh, this is the absolute other end of the spectrum, recording work that's not been recorded before. And uh, there's so many other other, uh, questions and problems that arise from that in that uh, who's going to listen to it? Um, How are they going to take it? How do you conduct it? And uh, how do the musicians uh, approach it? All those questions, hmm. the complete opposite of this. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, I found this one uh, just, I was intrigued because I didn't know what it was. And then, uh, you know, you hadn't heard. You, you're talking was, about Ranisky now. Yeah, Ranisky. Yeah. And so we said, oh, mm-hmm. well, let's talk about this. And, uh, well, uh, the person responsible for uh, getting these things recorded contacted us. <laughs> Yeah, uh, how about that? Yeah, Daniel Bernardson. And yeah. uh, so we've had some exchanges, and uh, we invited him to uh, come uh, share some of this experience with us because this, uh, as we saw uh, in the album title, this was volume one yeah. of Runitsky. And actually, there's going to be, uh, I believe, two more volumes. Uh, the next yeah, one Yeah, he informed out. us there were going to be two more. Yeah, and so this is music that... Uh, you know, when at the time, uh, it was uh, just as popular as any other uh, music uh, from the time period, and he was one of the biggest uh, Austrian com- composers at the time. But somehow, history hasn't been as kind to uh, Ronitsky's. Uh, and he he wrote 
a lot of music, uh, so many symphonies and other things. But uh, anyway, Daniel has been uh, working on this for a long time to get this music recorded, and he's actually invited the conductor of this recording, the uh, Czech Chamber Philharmonic Orchestra, uh, Parvodis, uh, and he's going to join us as well and give us some insights on uh, how this happens, uh, getting previously unrecorded music recorded and what that kind of process is and how to get it out to listeners and uh, hopefully let us know what's coming up next in this series. So we're going to be talking to them soon and uh, we're going to share that on the podcast, uh, hopefully timed with the release of the next volume. Yeah, uh, how that's going to go myself. and exactly when we're not going to say. So that's a little well, teaser to the audience. Well, we don't really know. Do we? we don't really know. <laughs> although we, we Depen- know. it depends when the uh, recording comes out. Yeah. yeah, but we do have uh, the interview set up, and uh, we're definitely going to have their insightful experiences and uh, a greater idea of what's going on here and find out uh, apparently uh, the conductor Marek Stilik is also involved in some other projects with uh, you know first time recordings too so I'm intrigued by that idea of you know reviving things that have uh, not been shared with modern audiences so yeah you get a fuller understanding of the past and there was a lot of good music it didn't become sure. like the uh, the aesthetic yeah. But it was all good, and it was all kind of vying for that. You know, it's yeah. it's sort of like, um, you know, it, it, the thing about classical music before before the whole period instruments um movement broke everything open. Um, it was sort of like, uh, you know, you'd have only the 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 major players of the time. It, was, it would be like kind of, you know, listening to like say if you're into '60s music, like listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and then you don't know anything about bands like oh, the 10 zombies years after or the zombies, you yeah. Know? You know, no they, one they told were cool. me about You want to hear about them, them. too, you know? Yeah. 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 So anyway, we're looking up forward to uh, our upcoming interview with Daniel and Mark, and we're going to share that with our listeners uh, sometime in the summer when this new release comes out. And uh, that's going to be exciting insight into some of this uh, forgotten but now available to us classical music recordings. So. I find this sort of thing very exciting about oh, classical yeah. music, just rediscovering music of the past that's just been ignored, you know, since its day. So stay tuned. I think it's that. really great. Yeah. And what's next on our classical list? Well, before we get to the next work, I want to just mention, since it's a piano album, I want to mention that May 4th was the 366th birthday of Bartolomeo Cristofori. Ah, oh, say it with me. What a luxurious name. Bartolomeo Cristofori. Cristofori. Uh, he is the inventor. Well, that's okay. Almost. Oh, you almost said it with me. Who is Bartolomeo Cristofori? Well, if you love the piano, Pianoforte. this is a name to remember. He was the inventor of the modern piano, the one that uses hammers on the strings rather than a plectrum that plucks the strings, which is what a harpsichord does. Um, the advantage of having ha- hammered strings is that you can, uh, by the uh, force that you hit the key with, you can make the sound softer or louder. And that was a new invention, and that really started a whole new uh, way of playing the piano, starting with around Haydn and Mozart's time. Mm. It's um, usually better to be hammered than plucked. Yeah, I find that to be the case. Yeah, when it comes yeah. to being... 
played percussively. <laughs> I think I'm going to be hammered by the end of this uh, podcast. In fact, <laughs> with with our uh, Knob Creek uh, single barrel bourbon here, uh, flowing freely. I don't know. We should feature some prohibition era songs. There's a lot of good uh, I, ones. From the thing, the thing about this, I don't, I don't drink much generally. But ever since the uh, since prohibition started here in Japan, I find myself drinking more. I don't understand how that happens. You know, and so I guess it's not available, so you just kind of panic. You say, "Oh, I got to get all this booze from my house or something." I don't know. Um, I, I generally find that music and uh, drinking goes together. I, I would like to suggest uh, for classical music listeners a nice cognac with classical music. That works really well. Cognac goes well. Uh, you have to set the mood. Um, it's a different kind of thing than you know. Yeah. Than bourbon, it gives you a different. It gives you a different sort of high. We can save the bourbon know. until we get to the jazz section. Right. Well, I'm just. I don't know. <laughs> I started with it today. Oh. And, anyway, um, so our um. So, with the, this um, understanding that uh, Christophori's 366, 366th birthday has just passed, yes. we go to the, the greatest of all pianists, because he invented a lot of new technique for the piano that is still used to this day, Franz Liszt. Okay, yes. the music of Franz Liszt. Now, he may not have been the greatest piano composer of all time. That's probably either Beethoven or Chopin or... There are many others, too, that we can oh, sure. go for. Rachmaninoff, Debussy, yeah. you know, people like that. Metner's nostalgia. Oh, I love Metner. God, yeah. you had to mention him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make my case for Metner's music one day. I'm a little fed up with people saying, oh, he's, he's second-rate Rachmaninoff. Actually, it's the other way around, people. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and I'll explain why one day. Um, Rachmaninoff just added more sugar to his... Uh, <laughs> he, he had more melodic sugar. That's all. That's why you like it more. Because you, you, you need that sweetness in your ears. <laughs> anyway, Franz Liszt. Okay, um, this is a recording. It's it's an album simply called Liszt, and it's by the um, British pianist Benjamin Grosvenor, who is uh, a real superstar these days. In, he's uh, a Britain. youngster, too. He's fairly young. Yeah, he's young. He is young. Um, I heard him when he was uh, very, very young, and I was like, oh, he's yeah, he's good. I'm not really interested in him. But... Since last year, he did a recording of uh, the Chopin Piano Concertos, and that really caught my ear. I was like, wow, this is really great playing. And uh, so I had to hear this one, the list one. So he's this is a pianist that grew on me, basically. I think when, when he was younger, he, I didn't find his... Uh, he, he had all the technique, but I, was, I wasn't mm. finding his interpretations terribly interesting. And now, suddenly, I am. Okay, this is... Um, the the key work on this disc is on the Decca label. And it's simp- called simply List, and it's got a picture of our uh, pianist with his um, chin in his palm and a black and mm. white photo on the cover, looking directly at the camera. The key work on this is the first one, the Piano Sonata. Yes, this the is sonata. A f- yeah, and this is really the standout work on this disc too. I mean, it, it, yeah, I guess this one had to come first. It's a big thirty-minute single movement work, which is nevertheless um, uh, divided into four tracks on the recording, so that you know when the four movements start within the uh, Despite continuous being structure in yeah. sonata form. Sonata form with four movements. That's a list kind of. Yeah. You know, in what? Well, yeah, I think the first movement yeah. is is a straight sonata though, yeah, yeah. and it just kind of goes on. All right. So anyway, this uh, did I write anything about this? Oh, I didn't. I got to remember. Um, this, but this was an amazing performance. I thought the the uh, pianist's control over the um, 
All right, now the there's some real blistering technique required to play this piece, and uh, people get really excited by that. Now, if you listen to classical music a lot, um, to me, like getting excited over a pianist's amazing uh, technical ability to get around the keyboard is sort of like being amazed that a major league baseball pitcher can throw 90 miles an hour. Yeah, sure, none of us can do that, but it's kind of expected at this level. What makes technique like this really special is the um, the gradations of tone that he's, uh, while he's doing all this amazing, you know, uh, acrobatic technique, he still managed to um, keep, like, the, the separate voices, you know, at a certain, like, uh, gradation of tone where they're very, very clear. It's it's just amazing, the, the technical ability in this. This is one of the best... Re- performances of this work I've ever heard. Um, I also like the Stephen Huff one a lot, too. Mm-hmm. That was my former, and probably maybe still my favorite one. I got to really think about it. But this one really caught my ear. Now, um, he um, he has a way, this this pianist, of really drawing out the uh, the melodies in this piece by like kind of slowing them down. It's sort of like, um, boy, how can I explain this? When, when, when something traumatic is about to happen to you, you know how everything just seems to slow down as it's happening? You know, yeah. everything seems to be moving in slow motion? He he almost creates that sort of effect. And you're hearing all these little details. And then the music will just like explode and just sort of go into this really amazing technique. Um, yeah, there again, like as with the Carenzis' Beethoven, there were a lot of details that came out of this that really amazed me. Um, I was um, riveted throughout this entire 30-minute work, which I always found a bit complicated. I found it hard to follow, and not in this case. It was really all very clearly laid out by the pianist. He fully understood the structure, and he fully put it across. Really, no criticisms at all. This was a great performance, I thought. Yeah, I right here, I listened to a few other recordings that I have of this, and um, his beginning is, is rather mysterious, uh, compared to some other recordings that sort of charge out of the gate. So he sets yeah. sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of nebulous beginning. But then hmm. once he gets into it, uh, he has a really great phrasing and articulation, um, which I think the, it, on the detailed end of it, you, know, you can look at this piece in, in a lot of different ways because it's a huge structure but there's yeah. a lot of smaller segments to it. And he's somehow, he really understands this piece. Uh, in, in reading of his approach, apparently he's kind of fastidious in his research of previous recordings and interpretations. And I, I think that shows that he really has this work on the, you know, the micro and macro level uh, committed, you know, to his mind with a map of it. And as a listener, there's a lot you need to get involved in with this. You have to listen to it multiple times to understand the overall structure and then, you know, the smaller sections uh, within the work. Uh, and he's got that, you know, captured on both levels. Hmm. Um, so I found that interesting because uh, the the small connections of phrases and the articulation are great, but he also gets the overall sweep of that. And he creates a lot of different contrasts of sort of tonal colors uh, inside of that. Yeah. Uh, also, that was uh, one recording yeah. I have uh, that, you know, some Japanese had uh, recommended to me is the, um, the Japanese pianist uh, Nojima, Minoru Nojima. Oh, I remember. Actually, yeah. I've heard this one. Yeah. yeah. I listened yeah. to that and some other ones. And what I thought too is um, 
not not specifically with Nojima, but in general, I, I find that sometimes like list means like a license to be sort of bombastic. With yeah, I feel like kind of Nojima sort of approached it like that, yeah. not quite bombastically, but he for 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 the display, you know. What yeah, I mean? but I don't feel like yeah. um, Grumman ever. He's very dynamic, but it's never mm. uncontrolled. So I felt like it was all within you know a, a reasonable. Yeah. Uh, sort of uh, limits of expression. I never felt right. like it got out of the reins. Um, <clears throat> so I like that. And with the uh, the whole narrative of the piece, it took me several listens to actually get that in my mind myself. But mm. knowing, seeing that the work he must have put into on smaller sections with, you know, the whole piece, I could appreciate that he had both of those, you know, smaller structures and larger structures in mind. Yeah, and uh, yeah, incredibly detailed and complete narrative performance uh, by a musician who I think he's not turned thirty yet. I think he's yeah, he's, I think he might he may it's still a, be in his twenties, but yeah, he's mature, uh, he's already a, a very major mature, pianist. Uh, approach to this and yeah. Yeah, just just fantastic. Wonderful. Um, oh, by the way, we we probably have just lost all of our Japanese listeners for saying something negative about Nojima. They really love him. Oh, well, I can't yeah. say it's bad. Yeah. Well, I do have to say no, he, this. No, he's a good pianist, but the yeah, sonics on that album. I just feel like the approach so is kind of. I think mm. someone left the air conditioner on when they recorded that album or something. So well, yeah, so. he has two albums: the list and the. There's one of Ravel's piano music too, and yeah, they kind of. It just sounds like they put him in a room and just kind of recorded him just to get him yeah. out there. They could have done yeah. better with the sound recording. Yeah. Anyway, so anyway, back to Grovener. The next piece is uh, sort of. Um, a little transition to the rest of the program. It's a bursus, which is a lullaby, um, and this is kind of a and not, and not a terribly memorable piece. List has a lot of works like this. One of the things that really fascinated me about this and really showed me that um, Grosvenor had done like a lot of thinking about all of these works is that in this piece there are the there's the, there are the themes. And what List will do, um, you almost get the idea that you're hearing an improvisation when you listen to this um, this particular piece. Now, it's all written out, obviously. He's, he's reading it from a score. But you kind of get the impression, like, when the theme is over, List won't just, like, he won't be like Beethoven. He'll go from one theme to the next. Well, he does in, in the in the sonata, but that's like a special case. Um, but in a piece like this, he, he'll, he'll start sort of meandering around as though he's like looking for another idea to kind of present to the audience. So th there'll be these like kind of like a few like stray notes where he's kind of thinking and then suddenly there'll be this like downward scale in thirds or in sixths. And it's like, oh, what can I wow them with next, you know? You almost get the, the impression that he's just kind of playing some thing while he's thinking of the next thing to do. And Grosvenor really captures that um, quality in this particular performance of this piece, you, you you get that that kind of idea that he's kind of thinking, hmm, what should I do next? Even though this whole this whole score is written out and he knows exactly what he's going to do next, mm. so you get you get the impression that you're at a list concert, and maybe waiting for him to uh, you know cast his spell on his audience. Okay, I, I really I really rather and enjoyed this that one, quality. This piece, there's apparently two versions of this, and this is the second this version. Is the, this is the later it, one that yeah. has more ornamentation, and so yeah. I I notice there's a lot of delicate playing in here that he he mm -hmm. handles very uh, well, and so you know there's nice technique and um, phrasing that goes along with that. 
All right, next we get three movements from the, um, well, th movements, three works from the collection um, Anne de Pelerinage, The Years of Pilgrimage. List um, traveled for three years, and he, uh, instead of keeping a diary, I guess he um, kept his um, his diary in musical form. Like, he wrote his impressions oh. as works, okay? And uh, these three are the three uh, Sonetti di Petrarca, the uh, medieval um, poet, Petra Petrarch or Petrarca, who was who was um, a contemporary of Dante, he was. I always kind of compared Dante and Petrarca as like to like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, sort of like uh, you know <laughs> Dante had Dante had his spiritual love for Beatrice, and I feel like the Beatles were like the more you know they weren't spiritual, but they were kind of the more the cleaner, more spiritual band, whereas the Rolling Stones were the bad boys, as was Petrarca, who uh, had this almost carnal. Uh, feeling for his love, Laura, okay, who he writes about <laughs> a lot in his poems. <laughs> it, it's kind of, it, it kind of plays out like that. This a whole adult music episode. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, we should, maybe we should do a whole episode on that, on that, okay? Anyway, that's the way I think of them anyway. All right, well, anyway, these three um, very romantic works hmm. and sort of um, these poetic sort of effusions on the, um, on the poems, um, which which are kind of a, they're not they're they're not about Laura either they're they're just sort of um just these sort of um very um sensual sort of um you know you know praise of the day or of whatever you know of heartbreak or whatever the poem happens to the poems in this case happen to be about um so you know Listian you know typical Listian fare mm. I'd say um you, you just get the impression List must have been. He he's kind of someone like I would have liked to have been. He just seemed to have known everything that was knowable at he the was time. The man that men wanted to be and women wanted to be with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I find myself wanting to be him myself because he was actually extremely well read and culturally, uh, you know, yeah. Informed. And he wrote so a lot, also. I believe he yeah. he wrote uh, various uh, essays and uh, other writings about different subjects. Right. So. Yeah, really one of the, the major musical influences of his day is one of the great pianists of all time, you know. Um, yeah, like I said, um, critics often say, you'll you'll read these things and say, if we were to go back in time and we could actually hear Liszt play, we'd probably be a little disappointed because pianists today have probably developed that technique far further than he ever did. But the point is, he came up with it. No one had ever heard this before. You got to really keep that in mind. Like, <laughs> everybody else is standing on his shoulders, you know. So, so later pianists may have been better, like people like Rachmaninoff, and then even the pianists of today. But uh, Liszt brought it into being, you yeah. know. All right, next comes the Reminiscence, Reminiscence de Norma. Norma is an opera by Bellini, Bellini and yeah. and um, it's a bel canto. This is the bel canto era of Italian opera. And Liszt did a lot of these sort of um, confections for uh, piano based on like themes from operas. He did, I think he did one on Carmen as well. I'm actually, don't quote me on that. I'm not really sure. Carmen this one I listened to. Carmen and, may uh, have come later. Yeah, like, I compared know. it with the uh, Marc Andre Hamelin. Uh, oh, the recording, recording that Amelin made. Okay. Yeah, and so that was kind of interesting because uh, Amelin is, uh, he plays it rather differently. His beginning, the way he sets the mood is much more stately, uh, and he uses a sustain very differently. Uh, Amelin, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, okay. Um, and uh, so it's kind of... Uh, 
It was an interesting comparison. I couldn't say I liked one either, you know, better than the other one, but they were mm. very different uh, in the mood that they they set with these. But I felt that uh, Grovenor, you know, his approach to this was it, he's a, he's a bit understated, isn't he? He's kind of got all this great, but it it was in line with the rest of what he had done on this album. Uh, right, yeah, exactly. It, if he had done it in you know a similar way, then I would have thought, well, this stands out. But I thought. It, it matches the mood with the rest of the. That's the, true. There's um, nothing. There's nothing at all profound about this piece. It really is a showpiece, and uh, the way Amlan plays it uh, is. Uh, I haven't heard this recording in a long, long time. But Amlan, being one of my favorite pianists, I kind of yeah, I've heard it. Yeah. Uh, he he'll, he 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 will show off if he if he get, he's not a showy pianist necessarily, but he will take those opportunities when they come up. Grovener doesn't do that. He he plays this in an understated way, and he's kind of trying to give it structure where I really don't think there is much. Um, uh, so as far as that went, I don't know. I thought this was it was. I mean, it's an excellent performance, but um, yeah. I don't think you can add any weight to. That. I don't really think there's much weight to this piece. And I think he was trying to bring a little more weight hmm. than it had. Okay. Anyway, it is exciting though. It's a, it's got some great technique in it, and all that uh, fantastic uh, tonal balancing is there. The last work is a, a transcription of the Schubert song Ave Maria, which is very, very famous. Everybody knows this. It's uh, quite something. Uh, this is a beautiful performance of it as well, with all these, these fantastic like filigree sort of uh, ornamentation on the uh, on the famous theme. Uh, just, yeah, a really great closer, I thought. Yeah, think? It's, um, I think he's got a lyrical approach to all yeah. the pieces. Um, right. Like I say, it really the, comes out in this one, in, especially in the, you know, the main course, the piano sonata, which is a monstrous thirty minutes. That's, yeah, that's, that's the reason you want to listen to this album. Yeah, by the that's way, that's the main yeah. course, and he he gets. You it's know, a he, long dessert. <laughs> well, it's, I shouldn't say it's a main course. That's a full course meal, and uh, mm. he gets each serving correct, and then the you know the overall arch and uh and the direction is uh really good too um so yeah uh nice and I, I, the other thing i made a note um on this recording uh the the sonics you know if you're going to listen to this much piano you want the recording to be good and this is this is very good it's a very close microphone uh mm. not much hall sound here at all it's, that's not a bad thing in this especially case. Especially for this pianist with yeah. the, the subtle way he plays. Yeah, you're going to feel like you're sitting right on top of the piano, uh, and you'll get to hear every single uh, aspect of that. Not much in the room. I didn't look up you know, where this was recorded, if it's a studio or uh, some hall or something, but uh, it's not distracting it, it's at all. It's a hall. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's as if the piano is right before you. And, uh, so there's nothing obscured in the, uh, the room sound of this recording at all. Yeah. Any of the loud playing to it never really blows you away with the no. volume, you know, no. there's um, nothing overly, overly done on this recording. Yeah. I'm trying to look up where it was recorded here. If I could find this really quickly. Anyway. Yeah, no, it's yeah. Uh, if I if I yeah, it doesn't seem to say. Uh, this is on uh, Decca recording label, location, way, Queen right? Elizabeth Hall, South Bank Center, London. Mm. Okay, yeah, so it is in a concert hall. You won't have mm. any idea what the hall is like, but you yeah. have a really clear idea of what the piano is like in that uh, room. Yeah, uh, which is good. 
Yeah. So it's some some excellent uh, recordings there. We hope you enjoy them. Listen to those. All right. So that thus ends the classical portion of the recording. And yeah. Well, I forgot to do my spiel at the beginning. So before we go on to the jazz, uh, I'd like to remind our listeners that uh, in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music. We talk about both classical and jazz here. And at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. All the music, that's six hours plus uh, for this week, in one place on Deezer, where you can follow us at username Adult Music Podcast. You can get our podcast as well as all of the tunes on Deezer. If you can't see the full description or list on your app, uh, please check us out on our host Podbean, where everything is... um, Listed very clearly, depending on the app. On uh, Apple, it's fine, but some of the other uh, pod apps, uh, the description gets sort of jumbled into one large paragraph with uh, the links and everything just put put into one big sentence that's messy. So check us out on Podbeam where everything is coherent. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. And if you give us a ranking or write a review, It's going to help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, and that's going to help us grow our audience. Um, This week, Apple uh, just came out with a new version. Of course, Apple Podcasts is the number one uh, listening uh, forum. Uh, It's the one I listen, I use. Yeah, yeah, but they came out with a new version. I just updated my iPhone, and they changed the podcasts. And the normal discovery menus are buried like two layers deeper. Oh, boy. So it takes people like several more clicks to find to the genres and subdivisions that they want, which means that more people are going to just click on what other people are already listening to. And if it's music, like the majority of it is K-pop. So if you've made it this far... Is it K-pop it's, it's even in the U.S. or just the oh, yeah Japan? everywhere? I don't know because you know we can't yeah. see what the, uh, but they're not Japanese All K-pop right. ones, so I imagine that that's an international. Um, so the whole world is listening to K-pop uh, podcasts. Like it it seems like it. Yeah, it's really but, popular. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so please, uh, you know, take a minute. Um, like subscribe. K-pop, incidentally, is Korean pop music. Korean pop for music, those who don't know. Sure. Yeah, yeah, very but, popular uh, now in Asia. And in the U.S. too. Oh yeah, apparently yeah, it's yeah, really uh, yes, right. surprising. Um, but uh, yeah, do do take a second to uh, please uh, give us a, a a ranking or write a short review. It's going to help us out. Uh, that those things get added into what uh, the algorithms choose to show in the automated recommendations, which increases our chances of getting listened to by new people, and that would uh, help us out a lot. Uh, over and above that, if you'd like to contact us directly, if you have any comments or questions, uh, something you'd like us to talk about, uh, any opinions, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And, yeah, uh, and every week uh, we give you uh, six um, recordings, three usually averaging three classical, three jazz, and yeah, and uh, really that's a recording for every day of the week. And then on the yeah. seventh day, you can listen to us and uh, find out what you're going to hear next week. Yeah, listen to us and find out something for next week. And you can get yeah. it all in one click. And we we haven't had much uh, joining up on the Deezer list. It's all right there. One click. Deezer is a great platform. 
Uh, so do check that out if you're wondering what uh, what you should stream not on. Just a podcast but as a streaming service we we both use it yeah and like it a lot good they sound have a high quality res, uh, nice catalog yeah good high res got a function good sound quality yeah yeah so they're, they're not sponsoring out. us but they can if they want they <laughs> we'll take out. them you can sponsor us yeah. yeah we just like them a lot so that's all it comes down to yeah okay so, on to yeah, jazz we'd like to hear from our listeners and on to the world of jazz so this week is a sax special it's uh, a saxophone spectacular. Saxophone spectacular. And yeah. And revisiting uh some regions that we've went to before. Um actually yeah, we, we can't get out of Italy, can we? No, we can't. Although and Francesco um Amenta can. He's apparently he can in New get York out of now. Italy. And so <laughs> he's apparently in New York. Yeah, how this my selection started was uh, I had the final recording I had been waiting for. I knew it was uh, going to be released because the al- the label had uh, indicated a date and released several teaser uh, singles. So uh, while I was scoping the new releases over the past few weeks, I noticed several sax ones. And you know what I'd like to do. The you know when we talked about the Grammy Awards and other things, we were obligated to speak about some you know, major releases and things. And that's all fine. And that's a good thing because we probably wouldn't have listened to them otherwise. And I think it's good to listen to them. If there's something that everyone knows about already, you know, jazz fans or something, all right, I'll I'll talk about it. And especially if it's something I really like, but I'd like to give equal time to sort of musicians that, you know, certain audiences may not have any access to or have never heard of before. Um, because, you know, that's what I like to, I always want to discover new players, you know, because the way that music, the music business is and how things get promoted and what gets listened to, it's not necessarily the most talented people that get the most recognition. Um, and there may be certain people who are known in different regions or countries that, you know, nobody else knows about. I introduced a lot of my, uh, old American friends from college days to uh, Fabrizio Bosso, the great Italian uh, trumpet player. And, and, you know, they never heard of him in the U.S. And now those guys are like, ra- they're raging for any anything new right. that he does um, and like that. And likewise, I'm yeah. trying to yeah, learn about a, the jazz scene there in There's a countries. really happening jazz scene in Italy. And oh, uh, yeah. I, I, at the hotel I stay in in Rome is, is actually, I just stumbled on it, you know, on my own. The... Uh, they um the jazz musicians whenever there's like a jazz festival in Rome they'll stay at this hotel and the two uh, concierges are rather um uh knowledgeable about about jazz so actually if you like jazz you might want to stay there it's called Villa San Lorenzo Let's near St John Lateran's uh, church let's uh so hang let's out there go. if you want to talk jazz they you know, also have a nice breakfast there too they're not sponsoring us either our friend Nathan <laughs> from Milan Nathan I know you're listening in now the Unlocked down Italy. But, uh, Are they? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think finally, well, little by little. But uh, yeah, he, he talked to uh, Fabrizio. And because uh, the last time he came to Japan, Fabrizio, I, somehow he missed the Kansai region. And I think he was in Tokyo and then Nagoya. And that was it. And it was on like a weekday. And I really wanted to go see him, but I just couldn't make it on like a Tuesday night. And I wondered, yeah. you know, why why they couldn't get him in Osaka too. Yeah, it would cost hundreds um, of dollars. Just you have to, it to, just to get to Nagoya to and then yeah. like, you know. But mm. uh, yeah, such is the the way that 
jazz music works, especially in Japan these days. And now who knows what's right. going to happen after Corona. But at least we have yeah. recordings. So our first yeah. recording in the sax category is by the Italian-born saxophonist Francesco Amenta. And uh, here he is with his American debut of an album called Midtown Walk. And I'm betting be mid Midtown means Italy, Midtown, New, uh, York. New York, right? Yeah. yeah it would have to be. Yeah. And this, this is a self-release on uh, Amento Music International. Yeah. Uh, Amento is a uh, tenor sax player from Bologna, Italy, and uh, currently resides and plays in New York City. Uh, the yeah. album is uh, co-produced by uh, John Lee. It's a long music history. Uh, he was a bassist for Dizzy Gillespie, and he's produced other artists such as uh, Larry Correa, uh, Roy Hargrove, Antonio Hart. Uh, so he's got some good production here. Um, prior to coming to the U.S., uh, Amenta, uh, he went to a music school in Bologna and uh, Conservatory of Verona. He studied with uh, Barry Harris and uh, also at the American School of Modern Music in Paris with uh, Johnny Griffin and Charles Lloyd. So he's got a good... Uh, Educational background, uh, he's uh, also studied uh, in uh, The Hague in Holland, uh, Royal Conservatory with Joshua Redman and Dave Liebman, uh, both great sax players. And uh, he has one previous solo recording called Colors and Ties uh, from 2015, So, but that was when he was uh, still uh, living in the Netherlands. So this album here, Midtown Walk, is his first U.S. debut. And um, just as luck would have it, uh, on this album, on piano, we have the magnificent Cyrus Chestnut, who uh, yeah, and also, he really plays out oh, on yeah, this album. He, it's fantastic. He's he, he's he really is one of the uh, the the, yeah. the the centers of uh, these uh, performances. Always uh, gives his gospely jazz infused best on any album, and he's on two albums this week, just uh, by luck of the draw. Um, so he's here. Um, on this album, he uses the whole palette, the whole yeah. keyboard palette. Yeah. Now, what I really like on this album uh, that's interesting and makes it very international is we have two Greek jazz musicians. So on bass, we have, uh, and I'm may butcher these names, forgive me, uh, uh, Kimon Karotas, Karotas uh, hmm. on bass, hailing from Greece, who is a student of Ron Carter. Oh, so you can't have a better nice. teacher than that, I imagine. And this one I thought was uh, interesting. Uh, the name is uh, on drums, Gary Kirkazal. And Gary, I think of a Gary that I know. But no, this is not some old guy, young guy, Gary. This is a female Greek drummer. Gary. Gary. Huh. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know uh, Greek names, if it's a nickname or whatever. Uh, anyway, apparently she is a uh, Berkeley School of Music educated drummer. Uh, I, looking at the timeline from what I could see, she would be a recent graduate. And I got to say, she's a really fine player. Uh, but I'll talk more about that as we go through this. And uh, we got an album from uh, Amenta here, uh, mostly originals with one uh, cover of Duke Ellington's Come Sunday. So the first track here is called Dancing, and uh, this is for his wife, who is uh, apparently a professional dancer. Uh, it starts out a very nice syncopated piano and bass intro, uh, and Aminta comes in, 
and you get a sense right away of his lyrical and melodic playing. He has a really full, warm, nice tone, uh, covers the melody, uh, and you get your first taste of the drumming of Krakozo here. It's a very delicate uh, snare subdividing cymbal playing uh, here. This is the kind of drumming I like. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, drummers are heard more than they need to be. But uh, on this recording and this drummer, not so. Uh, she's very supportive, but intricate. And I like this kind of drumming. And uh, also a very nice uh, solo after the sax uh, contributed by Cyrus Chestnut. Here sets the mood, gives us a taste of what Amenta's sound is all about. Uh, track two is called Home. And uh, looking at his website, uh, this tells us this is uh, impressions of New York street life as his adopted town. Uh, we get a very nice Chestnut intro. And then um, here you get a taste of... Uh, Karotsu's uh, bass playing. He has a really nice, deep, woody tone, you know, that kind of uh, uh, bass sound where you can just sort of smell the the wood. You can almost, mm. you know, taste it in there. He's, On this he, album in general, you get the idea that Chestnut, uh, Cyrus Chestnut, has just has ideas to spare. He just keeps oh, coming out with just one yeah. brilliant idea after another. And, and he's, he's right just, up front, really amazing. Yeah, he's always ready to, like, add some incredible ideas. Um, and uh, so... It starts out with this uh, uh, piano intro, and then the bass adds these nice pulses, and then it turns into an even beat. And uh, Aventa, Aventa builds a nice uh, solo on here. And then uh, Chestnut adds this really uh, funky, trill-infused solo. He uses trills a lot in his solos, but here they're all over. And then is all this like really cascading chords... Uh, he has too many ideas, you know, for the limit of the track. But uh, yeah, it's really nice. Um, then we get uh, track three is called Bunch of Time. Uh, this starts with a long, funky bass intro. Uh, yeah, that was it, cool. Yeah, it includes some uh, harmony, you know, some like bass power chord kind of things and some fun intervals. We get like a bluesy groove uh that contrasts with an uplifting section that has more open chords. And then, uh, yeah, when the drummer comes in here, uh, you know, uh, other drummers would like, maybe like open up and, you know, start smacking away here, but she stays tight in the pocket. She's really got that groove. I really like it. Um, there's a really nice sax solo by Amenta. And then, uh, Chestnut comes and he digs deep and funky, and he's adding all these runs and chords, and then with a real deep descent at the end. And um, it really accents the chords and the oh, key changes yeah, on this yeah. track too. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really, yeah. you're not going to miss any of the key changes in this in this particular track. He uh, really if, lets you know I they're ever happening. Recorded my own jazz album, like I would just like want Cyrus Chestnut to play, play backing on <laughs> anything that I could write. He would make it right. much better than anything that I could uh, come up with. Uh, track four is. Um, number nine and this is sort of uh kind of like reminds you of mccoy tyner uh there's a great little bass flurry we get some really hard swinging rhythm uh amenta comes in who's got some uh interesting rhythmic figures as he solos over the changes um then another like chestnut solo that's got some <laughs> really challenging rhythmic kind of figures he puts in like a really adventurous uh solo here uh, what I really like here, again, I keep listening to uh, the drummer 
here. It's like such a tight hi-hat um, and then comes to a drum solo that sort of subtly builds uh, over the bass and piano riff that comes in, you know, under it and then goes to the end. Uh, so this is a nice track. And we've got uh, a track called uh, 622, so June 22nd. It's a ballad, according to uh, his website, that marks uh, his first date as a leader and also the death of his father, which yeah. sounds, you know, happy and sad together. Uh, here in this ballad, there's, they give him a lot of space for him to carry the melody, which he has a nice tone to do. Um, after the sax, the uh, chestnut has a nice solo, a lot of unique kind of staccato notes and interval play, which is nice. Got some, again, great reserved drumming on a ballad, just some hi-hat and occasional brushes, and then a kind of uh, bass solo that reaches uh, up into the higher register, a nice classy uh, ballad tune. After that, uh, a tune called Travelers, and this is uh, rather, compared to the others, up-tempo, uh, it's kind of propelled by an ascending bass line and then into a more spacious section and then a descending harmonic pattern. Uh, some nice contrasts in the structure. Amenta makes a graceful solo uh, over the changing rhythms and uh, Chestnut's solo is kind of agitated and full of exploring rhythms. Uh, number seven is called Burgundy. Uh, this one's kind of fun. Uh, there's a drum intro and it goes, this tune starts with a New Orleans kind of beat. Uh, and so you get this beat, uh, the form seems to be, I was interested, so I listened to it a few times. You got like 24 bars. The first 16 beats is like an even kind of New Orleans beat. Suddenly you get like four bars of hard swinging. And then the last four bars of the, you know, the sort of form is goes back to even beat. And then it goes on. So they, they do this for the uh, the melody, and that carries on into Amenta's solo. But by the time it uh, gets to Chestnut's solo, like the swinging is too strong. And so it just it just swings through that. Uh, and then we get a bass solo, uh, some nice drum fills, and back to that uh, beat structure. But uh, it's kind of a fun, just happy tune, and it's got those you know contrasting rhythms. And uh, finally is... Uh, Come Sunday, uh, sort of spiritual tune by uh, Duke Ellington. And we get a very impressionistic piano opening by uh, Chestnut. And then uh, Amenta comes in with a rubato melody. And uh, this this is where I think he shines the most, his tone. It kind of works on a ballad like this. Uh, he gives a, you know, a, a subdued but passionate sax solo. It nods to sort of an Ellington type styling. Uh, there's a short piano solo with uh, graceful runs like Ellington would add this sort of short, you know, almost like firework kind of phrases. Uh, there's a bass solo that comes back to piano and then back to bass and, you know, uh, a sort of, you know, reverential but not uh, like, you know, historically thinking treatment of this. So it's old and new at the same time. 
And uh, yeah, so that's the album, eight tracks uh, with a very international cast. What did you think of yeah. this one? I felt that, yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it meant, a, I, I, I already talked a lot about Cyrus Chestnut. Um, I thought it meant, I didn't say anything about Amenta himself, he, Francesco Amenta. His uh, playing is very tasteful and as we would expect from an Italian, very melodic. Okay, we have a lot of right. this, um, this really refined sense of melody or this heightened sense of melody that we get from Italian players. Um, he has a full tone and a real solid presence. I mean, you're listening to him, uh, despite the fact that I'm being pulled over wanting to hear Cyrus Chestnut all the time. Chestnut really <laughs> just plays out. He doesn't just like kind of, he doesn't take a back seat. But nevertheless, Amenta is an upstage. So I, I feel like he's really, uh, his his presence is there. Um, I like, I thought the, um, like, Okay, the the bass player too. He's very active on this recording. Mm. He kind of sounds more like a like a blues bassist a lot of times than a than a jazz bassist. Like he's really kind of playing these kind of sort of you know bass patterns, sort of instead instead of like doing a walking bass or something like that. And uh, I liked it. Um, I thought the record was a, it was a really happy record. The recording was fantastic. It was very closely recorded. The um the yeah the the it. The uh, sound really had an impact to it. Really, just sort of, um, you know, let you know. Yeah, how can I say this? Let you know it was there. Um, right. Yeah, I liked it. It was good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I now um, I thought I'm I'm trying to like get a concept of Amenta, and so he he sounds very re- relaxed and reserved in any setting. Uh, hmm. So you know this is not a. Tenor but he's got player. this big full tone. Yeah, though, it's a full it? tone. But you're not going to hear any screams or honks. Yeah, in his playing, it's refined. It's, it's not in his uh, yeah. his personality. So he's, he he has this reserved sense of playing. Also, his compositions they're mature and interesting. He's a good composer here. Um, however, I don't know that I've heard enough of his sound character that I, I could say that his sound is going to be identifiable to me. I haven't heard enough of his personality here. That's the only thing I feel like I I can't really put a finger on what, you know, his identifiable, unique uh, sound signature is. Um, I know what you mean. Like I'm hearing Italian due to the melodic, the really melodic uh, accent, but I'm not really hearing Amenta. You know what I mean? Right. I'm kind of wondering about that. You know? Yeah. So we'll we'll see what what he comes we'll up with in the future. And uh, yeah, I mean, what, no, what, yeah. what his characteristic uh, is. No complaints be. at all. Um, an, a fine uh, recording, nice original compositions, and uh, shout out to these young uh, Greek players. Yeah, yeah, especially fantastic. this. Uh, this uh, I like the bass, but uh, uh, yeah, both Gary, were really great. Gary on drums. I really like a drummer who doesn't you know, just start overpowering things, but knows how to really sit in the pocket and uh, support all the roles here. And uh, yeah. Yeah, having, well, having Cyrus Chestnut on your album. Uh, Never hurts. That's great. Yeah. Adds <laughs> um, a lot to it. So yeah, I'm into, let's hear what uh, he does next and who he plays with. So uh, Italy to New York. And well, I just couldn't resist, uh, you know, after Snowy Kirk, uh, and then uh, we also did another uh, Danish. Uh, yeah, we're jazz really into the Danish. Uh, well, I mean, I, I want to say we we like Danish composers as well. We have a thing with Denmark, is but we're not showing that quite yet. Maybe in jazz we are, but uh, yeah. well, not in classical yet. But we do not like yet. But that's coming. And I have a thing with Danish speakers because I have. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, 
That's a that's a that's yeah. a thing. You know, the, my uh, living room is Dolly and the I Dolly speakers. Yeah, I, I, I like those as well. Dolly that I just I can't use in this this extra room, but I'm yeah. never going to sell them. So Dolly, 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 give me Dolly. Yeah, um, I like those too. Anyway, yeah, I need to know more about the Danish jazz scene and uh, also in general Scandinavian jazz scene because I think that. Uh, They've been appreciative of jazz uh, deeply for a long time, and they've developed their own uh, scene. And, I, and personally, I haven't you know, explored their own musicians enough. So whenever I get a chance to see something new, I want to check that out. So the next uh, one we're going to explore is uh, some Danish jazz. Uh, I guess these would really be the forefront of players uh, through this whole ensemble. But uh, the sax player is Klaus Waitlow, and uh, I believe you know, he's one of the foremost uh, in the Danish jazz scene. And this is his new album uh, called Portraits in Jazz Sunday. And, well... Is it called Sunday or is it called Portraits in Jazz Portraits Sunday? Portraits in Jazz hyphen Sunday. So okay. this may be a series, and actually... To sort of uh, look at his style of playing, you know, it might be a little weird to start with this album. So, I, you know, I've listened to some of his other recordings, and I, I guess this is sort of a jazz concept album. Uh, so you have to understand what they're going for with this album and, you know, what it is and what it isn't. So I'll, I'll yes. talk about that a little bit. But uh, anyway, uh, Waitlow is one of the most esteemed uh Danish jazz musicians and saxophonists. He's got the Danish uh, Music Award uh, for uh, the most highly respected jazz musicians for many years. Uh, originally, he played alto sax, but now he's known for his tenor work and his uh, composition uh, ability, which is really shown on this album. He was born in 1967, so puts him in our general age bracket. Uh, he's been active in the Danish music scene since the late 1980s. Uh, he's uh, graduated from the Rhythmic Conservatorium in Copenhagen, uh, where he also studied uh, composition with Bob Brookmeyer, the great uh, valve trombonist. So that's a very good teacher-mentor. Uh, he's got uh, eight previous albums as a leader, and he's won a number of awards, uh, including uh, being nominated for the Ben Webster Prize uh, in 1996, the most significant jazz honor in Denmark. He's uh, toured with Carla Blay, Steve Swallow. Uh, he's recorded uh, in New York with uh, Christian McBride. Uh, also, he's played in the uh, jazz club Montmartre with Eddie Gomez and one of my favorites, Dave Kikoski. And on this album, he's here with uh, some other great Danish musicians. The pianist, uh, I'm, I may uh, not pronounce these names correctly, so please forgive me. Uh, Nikolaj Hess, and the piano on this album is really fine. Uh, got on bass, Anders Christensen, and drummer. Uh, Jacob, or is it Jakob Hoya? 
and I guess from looking at the descriptions on the Danish jazz scene, these guys are a super group of Danish jazz musicians, and uh, I believe that to be an accurate description. Uh, however, this album is uh, with tunes that match a mood, as it's called. Sunday, it's supposed to match a mood of a lazy and quiet Sunday afternoon. And so what we're looking here for is uh, expression in compositions of interplay and sort of uh, communication and tonality. We're not looking for uh, sort of, uh, you know, extreme expressions of what the saxophone or other instruments can do. But uh, this was a really beautiful recording. It took me a few listens to really uh, get it. Uh, and they're all original compositions. Uh, and uh, if once you see what's going on here, it's a very beautiful album. We start out with a track called Stay Around. And uh, when Waitlaw comes in, you get a sense of his airy sound. Uh, it you know, That sort of Stan gets breathy type of beauty yeah i thought stan gets right away yeah, when right i heard away this, the, when it the comes breathy kind of yeah. kind of like and, uh, and breathy nice kind of tone sort of six eighth ballad uh a very relaxed piano song solo here and a really delicate cymbal work in the background and this has boy he has a great command of touch uh he doesn't need to do much while he shows you that uh, his fingers can get uh, all kinds of tones from, you know, just playing a few keys. <laughs> it's like he's got a few instruments all tied yeah. together right there. Uh, and then he ends this one with a really breathy ending. And so that sort of sets the mood. Uh, goes on to a track called Clouds. And uh, this is uh, some piano chords they have a wandering bass intro. Then we get some like ascending long tones on the sax that uh, start a tender melody. And you actually feel like you're watching just clouds uh, float yeah. over you uh, and get a nice uh, piano solo. Very that starts. impressionistic yeah, track, it's impressionistic. Piano solo starts over a pedal bass tone and then you're off to the skies. And uh, yeah, what a nice uh, piece. Uh, Followed up Track three is called Ingrid. I wonder who she is. It's got a mysterious yeah. minor piano figure intro. And then a very slow sixth eighth kind of pattern with changing moods. And then the sax comes in and it builds over very chiming uh, piano chords. Uh, very, very nice. It's, oh, this is all very subtle things. It may take several listens to uh, get to it. Track four is uh, Largo. Get some nice sax and bass work over a minor melody. And then a sudden nice major change uh, to a major key when the piano comes in. Uh, it gets a little bit bluesy in the middle and then comes back to major. So there's a lot of sort of uh, tonal changes here. A nice delicate bass solo. And then it's sort of all those major changes sort of make you think there's going to be a happy ending, but no, it sort of goes back to the minor uh, for the ending. And this is a great piece of moods. I really like this one. All right. Then number five is uh, Melancholia. 
uh, a great melody that really becomes uh, familiar. As you're listening to it, I was convincing myself, no, he didn't write this. I know this. Somebody wrote this. I've heard this before. Uh, it's one of those kind of uh, tunes. Uh, it's very relaxed and balanced, uh, so you feel like you know it. Six is uh, called Velvet. This is another 6-8 piece. Uh, and the melody is subtly doubled in the sax and piano, just in places, and then it's not. So it's a nice effect. Uh, the bass solo comes in lots of space. And again, another piano solo with this exquisite touch by Hess. This guy really has uh, some kind of super touch in his fingers. Yeah, yeah it's great. And then, I bet he's got classical training. For yeah, him, I'm you know, sure. Yeah, he's, yeah, he really can just, you know, playing just a few notes differently, he can do so much. And I really like the last two tunes on the album. Uh, seven is uh, Strom. Uh, it's got that little, I don't know how you... The, the O with the slash through. <laughs> o with the slash through. Um, I don't actually know how to say that. I don't know, I don't know how, how to, to pronounce it. I should look it up. Anyway... Uh, this yeah. has got a mysterious modal melody. Uh, it, it's got a, a nice sax and piano solos and good support from the rhythm players. A really interesting piece. And we end up with uh, a tune called Up in the Sky. And this is this is a great piece. It starts out with this free rubato melody. Uh, the drums come in on the toms and there's sort of these rolling piano chords, but it doesn't really, you know, get into any meter or anything. And then right about in the middle of the song, it becomes a jazz waltz in a minor key. <laughs> and it just sort of like starts going on uh, with that, you know, almost like a moon uh, Van Morrison moon dance or something. And then right. uh, the piano with a great piano and sax solo. Uh, so it, it goes from like completely impressionistic to, you know, this other mood. Uh, yeah. So, I admit this took me a few listens to get deeper into the whole um, mood. So you have to be like in the right sort of frame of mind for it. But if you are and see, they're going for a mood discovery. This is not about uh, technique uh, in you know a flashy sense. This is about you know discovery of uh, subtle moods and things. But uh, Waitlow's tone is. Uh, you know, really subtle. He's got a great sound. This is delicate composing, and the pianist has has a you know great subtle touch. Nothing is flashy here. It's all very about, very much about the commu intercommunication, and um, subtle interpretation of the you know small elements that are here. So yeah, great recording. Yeah, you're talking about the mood, and that, I got that too. Uh, even the song titles are sort of evocative of the mood the album is trying to put across. Yeah. Melancholia, uh, Velvet. It, it has this kind of late night, mysterious kind of vibe to it, you know, and everything kind of feels a little bit uh, like sort of muffled and sort of you know, even the breathy tone that uh, yeah. uh, Wardle gets on the. Um, the, the the saxophone you know, it, it, it is all evocative of that. Um, I, I say this is a great late night listen for yeah. if you're trying to unwind or something like that. It's it's a bit. Uh, it was intriguing. I I, I liked this. It, it's. I it's, actually listened to it in the morning too, which oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, I should probably play this again at night. But you know, maybe I'll do that yeah, sometime. It's, it's very um, you know mood like, you know. It's a late night or a rainy Sunday or sometime you want to be relaxed, but yeah. definitely dive into it after work. <laughs> yeah, it's a deep. There's a lot. It's there's deep. A lot, it's good. 
going on in a subtle sense uh, here, and his tone is uh, is beautiful. The the pian piano playing is so reserved, but you could you could tell this. You know, I I've read some reviews of the this pianist Hess's other playing, and you know he's capable of a lot, but uh, he's he's only going to let out just what this mood requires here. Um, but what a touch. Mm. Yeah, he's someone I'd like to really hear more of. I really <laughs> want to know a bit about him. You know, it's kind of why haven't I ever heard of this guy before? You know, but, when you uh, can hear someone play the same note like four times and each one sounds, you know, yeah. very very differently, you know, there's something special about his fingers. Um, you know, so you can sense that with this pianist, and that really adds to the uh, the ambiance yeah. on this recording. So yeah. Um, I, I, it took me a while to to dig into it, but I'm glad I did, and I'm going to check me out too. more Danish jazz whenever I get the chance. Uh, another one that uh, really made me happy to have yeah. been introduced to this. Happy but, in a sad way, sad in a happy in a way. way, sad in a happy yeah. way. That's in a late night kind of, you know, late night kind of melancholy thing. way. You know, I listen to these um, in the order that you're actually talking about them now. Uh, the Manta, Waitlow, and then Waitlow, and then the mm. uh, next one, uh, and it, it really is kind of like a <laughs> a bright, somber, bright sort of <laughs> progression. Yeah. It almost feels like a a Baroque concerto or something, you yeah. know, in a way that as far as sound goes. So the third yeah. one, what do we have here? Well, we're gonna end, yes, on a sort of. Uh gospel ending i yeah, guess i guess i i well that track I, I at least yeah exuberantly anyway this was the one He's... i've been waiting for because i know this player very well uh one of the great alto players of our generation mr vincent herring he's our generation or is he older than us oh he's a good maybe a couple of years older than us uh, okay but not much, not much older. He's not quite okay. 60, I believe. He's in his 50s. And um, yeah, Mr. Vincent Herring, with his latest release, it's just out on May 7th, just on, two days ago. On the fantastic sounding Smoke Sessions label. Yeah, preaching to the choir. And that's what he does. Come on, in that he track, does anyway. Um, yeah, and all <laughs> of He was tracks. certainly preaching to the choir on this album because I really like this. Oh, this is, this is just awesome. Playing been waiting for this for a while um well uh last i mentioned in our you know in our grammy jazz uh, with the the amazing in not in a good way picks uh for grammy award well somewhat predictable with their little darlings they always predict and um yeah, they, not, they 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 do tend to pick the same artists every year and, and not only year. that you always know who's going to win too you know yeah, well, not you always, always usually well for good sense but um, you know, one of the albums from last year uh, that was great being the 100th anniversary of Charlie Parker's uh, birth, uh, Bird at 100, uh, was a great tribute album that uh, featured uh, Vincent Herring. Uh, that was on the see. Grammys one? Uh, no, it wasn't. That's no. <laughs> that's why oh, I it should have been. About, I yeah, see. Yeah, okay, yeah. I understand. Uh, I, well, I, I thought, thought I, I say, did I miss that? I don't know. No, no, we, we talked about it on, I, I mentioned I it as what as okay. should have been. Could have been a contender. <laughs> Could have been a contender, <laughs> but it wasn't. Of course, I, yeah. my aging mind forgot about the that Vincent whole conversation, Herring, but go ahead. Bobby Watson and, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Gary Bartz. Uh, 
three t- three great alto players uh, there uh, playing a tribute, also featuring Dave Kukowski on piano. And uh, the bass player here on this album, hailing from Japan, uh, Yasushi Nakamura. Yeah. I noticed that myself. Yeah, who uh, I guess he went to the U.S. at a young age, uh, age yeah. nine or so. But um, yeah. Uh, there, now, there is a lot of gra- there are a lot of great Japanese players in jazz. We're going to have to highlight a few of them, being yeah, yeah. that we live in Japan, you know. And well, that's one thing I want to say about this album. He should be highlighted more. Come on, Vincent, no bass solo at all. <laughs> um, there, there were no bass solos, no, but, there, but Vincent, yeah, I'll talk more about that as we go through. But uh, yeah, um, yeah uh, so maybe gotta, it's just a, he's a, he might be an understated player. He's Japanese an understated people do player, tend to be understated. He burns know? slowly uh, through here. Anyway, uh, yeah, great album as I expected. Uh, from uh, his past outputs, uh, you know, all of Vincent Herring's releases are great. He's got some great uh, duo sort of dual dueling albums yeah. with Eric Alexander, uh, in a, not in a friendly sort of uh, you know jesting tenor and alto, and they're, they're all great. And uh, his all his other recordings are smoke sessions, so I expected this one to be great, but. Um, <clears throat> Uh, well, also, I before I get on to that, uh, also, in addition to uh, Cyrus Chestnut on piano and Yasushi Nakamura, yeah. you got Jonathan Blake on drums. However, uh, Herring was uh, facing uh, a serious uh, recovering from coronavirus after returning oh, from some that. gig in uh, Las Vegas this year. And uh, although he recovered from the initial symptoms of the virus, uh, the after effects left him with a serious case of rheumatoid arthritis, uh, which uh, for someone who needs to use their fingers for a living and creativity, uh, had him thinking he may be looking at the end of his career. And while he was trying to overcome that is when he recorded this album, according to uh, the... uh, smoke sessions and his own uh site information so it listening to this you would never suspect that because he just sounds brilliant here but let's hope he uh has made a full recovery and so we got a nice mix of um types of compositions here of original standard and then interesting covers so uh the album starts out Number one with uh, Doodley's Dilemma, and this is a Herring original dedicated to the Swiss drummer Joris Doodley. Uh, starts out with a great descending bass groove. It locks in, and then right away you get that burning alto tone that uh, Herring is known for. And uh, his solo, it, it burns in spots because he, he's a burning player, but he does hold back a little bit because this is just the first track but you get a sense that things are going to be uh, inflammable as we go on here it's uh, just really sharp edged tone really oh, yeah. a complete opposite of uh klaus <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. uh Waitler over here is yeah. a complete different yeah he's yeah he's got that burning tone uh mm-hmm. and then uh, chestnut comes in with a solo and uh, he his solo actually matches the title. There's all these sort of rhythmic dilemmas that he introduces. Uh, Chestnut is great for playing with rhythms and uh, setting up little kind of equations. And uh, he gets really fed by uh, Blake's drumming. Uh, Blake's not really a subtle drummer. He really knows how to uh, 
feed the fire uh, when it needs to be fed. Uh, so we start out here burning, but not too much because uh, there's more to come. Uh, second track is the uh, well-known standard, Old Devil Moon. Um, now this take of it is really interesting because uh, they don't play it straight. They mix uh, this over the bass line of Benny Golson's classic uh, Killer Joe. You know, if you know. Mm. Da, 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 da. And you've got the bass line under that. Um, so this is a nice little uh, kind of, you know, trick here. Yeah. And this has been done in different things uh, like uh, Phil Woods uh, did Willow Weep For Me over the all blues bass line. So it's right. a sort of juxtapos- juxtaposition um, uh, that works really well here. And then uh, off from the break of the head, uh, you get this great uh, alto wail into uh, a blazing bluesy solo by Herring. Uh, and so, although this is a jazz tune with, uh, you know, uh, you know, great, uh, you know, sort of complex uh, chord changes, Harry can find the blues in all of these sort of uh, harmonic changes with uh, complex runs. And uh, this is what I like about his playing to me. Uh, so as any modern player, you can probably sort of pull the link to Cannonball Adderley uh, mm-hmm. most closely with that real uh, bluesy feel and intensity. At the same time, I do he- hear a lot of Phil Woods in his playing with the sort of harmonic structures that uh, uh, he puts into some of his lines. And I know that Phil Woods was one of his early influences and he played on some tours with him. So I can hear both of those in his playing, uh, but he always maintains his own unique kind of voice. Uh, so... Uh, that's what I like about him. Uh, link to the past with a unique modern voice. Uh, Chestnut has a really playful solo here. This is a sort of tumbling ending break before the melody returns, and you get the Killer Joe thing here, back in uh, Nakamura's bass. Uh, and then Herring burns out at the end with blues licks and wailing, uh, and the tune is over. Again, no bass solo. Uh, uh, it takes <laughs> I want to, to say though I want to say also yeah. though, Chestnut also just seems to take more of a backseat on this album than he did on Amenta's album mm. so uh, I, I, it may be Herring's presence that's kind of making these players uh, he has a huge like presence I mean, he certainly tone, does have a yeah. huge presence yeah, yeah that, that tone is just like the sun rising on the ocean um, this goes into track three uh, Ojo de Rojo uh, this is a Cedar Walton tune. Uh, Cedar Walton, a great jazz pianist uh, for listeners, if you don't know. Uh, usually, as a sideman uh, to greats like everyone from you know, Lee Morgan and other players, but uh, if you check out his own uh, releases and trio, a wonderful pianist, uh, and who uh, Herring had a long association with uh, several decades, I believe. Uh, this one's a fast sama beat with uh, syncopated breaks into the melody. Herring catches fire, uh, pretty soon with another passionate <laughs> solo uh chestnut does some uh, rhythmic magic tricks to here and it's a fun uh journey on this tune that uh obviously herring knows well because he probably played it uh, many times in association with walton and uh, then we're on to what could be in another person's hands maybe in the, <laughs> i know it's gonna happen here <laughs> maybe in the original person's hands a bit Cheesy, cheese whizzy. Uh, but we've got Lionel Richie's 
Tune, hello. Hello, is it me you're looking for? Probably you're not looking for me, but whatever Herring was looking for here, he kind of finds it uh, in lesser hands. This would not be a good choice, but he gives a really gentle treatment of the melody. They do it right, and Chestnut knows how to just, you know, he can do any jazz thing, but he can also do these really gospely and funky kind of backing things. So he does it just right here. And, Actually, uh, I want to say this is the, uh, the. I didn't like this song until now, until yeah. I heard this particular <laughs> version of it. I, I just remember this awful, like you know, well, the, the Lionel Richie version itself was kind yeah. of enough. But th then there was a video where he was like kind of trying this, to seduce the clay this uh, sculpting head, this blind the clay sculpting yeah, 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 woman. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. Oh and my I think, god! <laughs> I think we played this when I was in junior high. We played this like with uh, you know stage band, and we had a like a. Seministico version of it or something like yeah, that. It's but. kind of an amorphous sort of song and yet he gives it a bit he gives it like a kind of solid sort of um yeah. form I think on this uh, on this particular performance yeah, does so it comes um, out okay. Herring in this in this case. I liked this one. Yeah, this yeah. is he, he really made this song for me finally. I mean it's a good song as far as the writing goes, but yeah, the melody Richie good, yeah. Lionel Richie Lionel Richie's performance was kind of a little kind of blah I thought on this but uh, this was good yeah, that was in, the in Herring's hands then we go uh, jumping back in time a little bit we got Fried Pies the old uh, West Montgomery tune yeah. and uh, this is one of those uh, kind of tunes that um, it's just set up for fun uh, so the way the head is structured you, you get two uh, 12 bar blues choruses uh, this sort of sets you up, you know, and, oh, okay, this is blues. And then you get like uh, 16 bars of modal sort of uh, transition that like build tension. And then you're back into the blues. Um, so you get, you know, this hard swinging and then modal kind of contrast between that builds the tension, which really works in the solos. Um, as it gives the players, uh, you know, these contrasting sections. So you got sax, uh, piano, and uh, drum trading choruses at the end here. Everyone's having a lot of fun on this tune. So, um, yeah, fried pies, this is a good one. Uh, into the sixth track, minor swing, a self-descriptive uh, Cyrus Chestnut tune. You got a funky, mysterious ascending bass line uh, that uh, has a contrasting section with syncopated bass or piano chords, rather, um, but really nice bass playing behind the solos here. Um, you can listen to what Nakamoto's doing here. He's uh, switching things up. He's got like one note, like ding, 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 and then he'll switch to walking, and then like two note, kind of figures effortlessly just with whatever the solo is doing. So, you know, he's, he's constantly following the soloist, uh, and especially behind uh, Chestnut's solo, which is really boisterous. And whatever the soloist mood is, his bass is sort of matching that. And so I was like, oh, wow, you know, th this guy's really great, but he's he's really a background player in role and uh, also, you know, uh, sort of delegation on this recording. Uh, after this one, we go to uh, In a Sentimental Mood, uh, 
Duke Ellington tune, of course. Uh, Herring plays the melody with a really fat, full sound here. He got lots of nice spaces afforded him in the arrangement. Uh, it's a lovely phrase solo over, and here the drummer lays back a bit more than other places, so sparse drumming. You got some nice little sparse tickling by Chestnut that fits, you know, Ellington's style on a tune like this, which is nice. Then we've got the title track. Uh, an original by Herring called Preaching to the Choir. This has got a gospel groove, and Herring mixes up uh, bluesy phrases, some blazing runs, and then some, you know, outside of the chord harmonic runs uh, in a really charged up solo. Uh, yeah, upbeat, Chest immediately, immediately appealing track. I yeah. like this a lot. Chestnut does a funky and far out balance. He's sort of like intergalactic and terrestrial at the same time. And then he comes up with this sort of left hand chords of doom that are like, <laughs> sort of like you know, Armageddon uh, there. I don't know where he found those sounds, but, you know, they're kind of all fun. Uh, nine, track nine is a Granted. It's a Joe Henderson tune. It's got mm -hmm. a sparse piano chord opening, get a minor melody uh, into a herring solo. It builds attention with drums. The piano keeps pressing him harder and harder. And then Chestnut comes in with a rolling interlude. And he's got a real rambunctious solo with more thundering left hand sort of things that he does. And then um, they trade fours, sax, and drums uh, through this. Uh, you know, uh, if, if you know the original of this Joe Henderson one, it's a nice. Uh, cover of this and the album ends on a positive light with uh, another standard pop tune from Stevie Wonder you are the sunshine of my life and this is another amazing kind of uh, workout for this um, yeah very very popular and well known song um, they did I, a lot of interesting things with it yeah so it comes in with this light in looting intro by Chestnut and um, what I I thought he does the same thing on the intro as at the start of his solo he's like really getting fifth dimensional you can almost be up up and you away like, in your beautiful balloon yeah. here you know that kind I, thought, of like, I thought that was what you were talking yeah. about yeah like uh, yeah. light and lilting and then uh, Marilyn McCoo sits on my lap and whatever uh, yeah I should probably and you, and, grandma, and you give her a, a renaissance workout. Is yeah, that what you're... whatever. whatever. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is uh, like, you know, it's got that sort of uh, 70s, uh, you know, uh, new harmonic approach to pop tunes with it. But uh, then they give it a boss of beat with a happy melody. Uh, so it could be a bit cheesy, but Herring rips out with a solo. And this is, this is where he reminds me of like, uh, Phil Woods, because Phil Woods would take on these kind of uh, style tunes like this, but he would keep them really rooted, like seriously in the jazz vein. And so Herring does that. And so I, I this is where I thought uh, this is what he, uh, Phil Woods would do. And actually, on a phrase, the beginning of uh, Willow Weep for me, uh, he mm -hmm. uses that twice in here it's not like he quotes it or something but it just becomes part of two phrases and so i thought uh you know uh i it just reminded me of a lot of different things and then uh you know chestnut sets this a bit you know fifth dimensional thing at the beginning and then at the start of his solo but he sort of uh you know abandons sort of uh 
too much 70s, and he really pounds it out for a climax on this solo. Um, then it comes back to the melody. It repeats over the last phrase with drum soloing that continues after the sax drops out. And then the uh, rhythm players close it out. So, yeah, um, you know, this is probably the coolest version you could do of Sunshine of My Life. Yeah, and, it was great. There's yeah, some great, great soloing on it, too. I, I really, I really, you know, it picked yeah. me up. Yeah, and I mean, I think what what Herring wanted to have was a really positive ending to this album after, yeah. you know, uh, what musicians have been through, and he personally has been through, you know, through the coronavirus and lockdowns and all of this kind of thing. So, mm. yeah, this album, this tune will really make you feel happy. Uh, yeah, you know, and uh, great, so- yeah, great soloing too. Like the extended version, oh, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of, gr- there's a lot of, it's a really good song. Basically, it's a really mm. good song to solo over as well. Yeah, Stevie Wonder could write really good pop tunes, uh, good harmonies, good melodies, and everything works together. And you know, so. Basically, what you've got here, you know, is Herring showing you why he's one of the top alto sax players of the day. You hear the past greats in his playing. As I said, you can hear Cannonball Adderley in there. You can hear the amazing, you know, technical kind of runs that uh, Phil Woods put in there. But he's his own man. He's got his own things here. And especially, uh, he's adept at both, you know, turning on a burning intensity you know, take your torch and, you know, what do you want to burn? He's going to just burn it up. It doesn't matter what kind of tune it is or, you know, uh, what the complexity of it is. He'll just, he's going to incinerate it. Uh, with, yeah, with his tone, not necessarily with his like, you know, technique really. Well, it's got, yeah, it's, he's, he's more got, of like a, he's got a big tone. Yeah, I he's think a, he's got a, both. a huge presence. Tone. Well, he's got both, but I mean, yeah. what he it's it's mainly with his tone on this album, I would say. Yeah, tone, his technique, mm. he can do all the things, but... But if you need tender, he can turn that on too. And yeah. uh, he can treat something yeah, nice mood. when it's called for. Yeah, with reverence. So, yeah, I think, you know, to me, I, mean, I, I like, uh, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, players. I, like. I I think it in order to be at this this level, you know, it takes some sense, some degree of maturity. Um, so, you know, he's in his, uh, in his 50s later probably mid mid fifties now. Um, so to get like us then, yeah, to get this gravitas, you know, this takes a journey. Uh, there are some, you know, younger players who are really great and things, but to have all of these sort of a judgment when it comes to what tune I'm going to use what on and how I'm going to interpret it and where I'm going to step on the gas and where I'm going to coast. You sort of need that sort of rear view mirror, uh, view of life and musical thing, and he's got that here. Uh, yeah, so he gets my extreme respect for this. He's got a nice ensemble again. When you've got Cyrus Chestnut on board, that's some gravitas there. And, yeah, uh, he's a big man, and he is big on expression with surprises too. Uh, yeah. Boy, this guy can just take some solo and add all these kind of interesting elements into it and turn it around and tip it inside out. Yeah. This is a good this guy's great a stuff. Amazing pianist. Yeah. Yeah. He but, was, he was good. Like, like I said though, on this album, he's a bit, he takes a bit more of a backseat. Yeah. It's like, he knows who he's playing with. He's a little bit but behind the, there. Yeah. But uh, still, even so boy. three jazz albums, three yeah. completely different sounds, 
yeah. uh, on the saxophone. It was it was, yeah, it was a really interesting week, I'd say. I'd say. But what I want to say is, too, on this album, Nakamura, come on. Yeah, well, we need a bass solo. Don't be shy. <laughs> we need one bass solo on here at least, you know. Um, yeah, what a, what a great supporting role on this and other albums I've you know heard him playing on. Uh, he really should... Uh, Really want to hear more of what he can do, but uh, hey, he's you know one of the in-pocket players in the New York scene, so uh, I'm sure he's just doing the Japanese thing and being kind of uh, you know happy to be in that scene. But uh, yeah. listening to what he does behind other players makes me just want to hear more of him on his okay. own. Okay, and well, maybe so. we will in the future. Oh, I'm Let's sure hope we so. Will, yeah. 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 Well, okay, and there yeah. we are. So we got a full, we've got a full sax life, which is always, you know, yeah, good to have. It's um, always ha- good to have a good sax life. I isn't don't it? like to be sexually abstinent. Um, yeah, no, no, absolutely so, not. We weren't that this week. No, not this week. And we're going already. <laughs> we're going. We all, we were sexually fulfilled. We were sexually fulfilled. We had a Renaissance awakening. Yes, we and, did. And uh, then we jumped right into being romantic. We skipped over all that. Baroque and classical stuff, and um, you know, yeah. we were well, that's coming up in the future. No worries. Oh, yeah, we, we coming can skip soon. Eras and uh, things at will because we are mature and in charge here. Um, you know, so we've got some interesting things coming up in the future. Uh, just as a reminder, if you enjoyed the podcast, you stayed with us till here. Uh, please, uh, <laughs> and that was a that really took some doing because this was a long, it's a long one. Yeah, we're here at two hours. Yeah, we're rambling hours, along but, today. Uh, you know, please do uh, take just a moment, give us a ranking, a review, follow, subscribe, whatever platform you're on. Uh, shoot us an email at adultmusicpodcast, all one word at gmail dot com, and we'd love to hear from you. And remember. El Grillo en Buen Cantore. Oh.